Welcome to Andy, James and Andre Talk Money Stuff. Although Andy is the Oracle of Latham, and James is super smart, they are not your gurus. We are not your financial advisors. Please listen to the end of this episode for a full disclaimer. Thank you for listening. Alright, here we are, episode 27, Sunday the 11th of December, and we have a special guest. So uh, we've got uh, Andy, James, myself, and Parwin here joining us for the first time. Welcome aboard. Thank you, Andre. It's great to be here on the platform. How are you guys? Good, mate. What's been going on? How's well, the- World Cup. World Cup dramas. Dude, I, I, I was... Uh, uh, I'll probably get mobbed and, and beaten to death, but... It was a little bit comical watching the Brazilian fans. Like I walked, I walked into the room, and they must have just lost like penalty shootout or what something. What room did you walk into? My, my house. Oh, and and like just the footage, like they're doing like close ups. The dude's like fully balling, like oh, right. crowd people yeah. just like ah. Well, they were favourites to win the whole yeah, World okay. Cup, and um, yeah, they they went out on pretty harsh conditions. Croatia got a very jammy goal. It was a deflection. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, statistically unlikely goal, I guess you'd say. Yeah, um, yeah Croatia's a really solid team, though. Yeah. Like, they're a very well-oiled machine. Yeah. Very smart play. The level yeah. of passion is just so full-on, man. Like, the the, the handsome guy, uh, Ronaldo, Ronaldo, when he oh, got, like, taken he just walks straight off the field and they're all comforting. He's like, eh, crying and stuff. And- yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, anyway, yeah. So, yeah, Croatia, who knows? Maybe they go all the way and play France in the final again. Yeah. Any, you mentioned controversy. What? Oh, the, the refereeing in the France-England game was amongst the worst refereeing I've seen. And rumour has it that I don't look favourably upon the English team. Yeah. Um, people might have got the impression that I don't really like the English team based on comments I made last week about hating the English team and wanting them to lose the World <laughs> Cup. Um, Anyway, yeah, I um, I think the English were completely robbed. I think um, the ref was very biased against England and it's some of the worst refereeing I've seen in my life. And yeah. I think England totally should have won that game. France should have had probably 10 yellow cards. Mm-hmm. I think um, there was a call that was contentious um, that could have been a penalty for England that wasn't called. Um, Harry Kane was fouled outside the box and fell inside the box. Um, I've seen them go for penalties. And France's first goal was on the back of fouling an English player and that foul not being called. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think they, they got robbed. Mm. And the worst thing is now we have to hear English people whinging about how they got robbed. <laughs> so, yeah, can't win. I mean, the best case scenario would have been England knocks out France. Yeah. And then Morocco knocks out England. Yeah. That would have been perfect. Yeah. Because, you know, you want them to have hope, but you just want it snatched away from them at the end. <laughs> But yeah, didn't go that way. So yeah, bad luck, English um, fans. I think think you guys are robbed, and, and you're the better team. So what's going on in investment wise? Any anything cool for you? No, not really. I mean, the, the World Cup has taken a lot of my mental energy. To be yeah. honest, <laughs> how about you, James? Like I monitored the markets, so, so, yeah. and, and he's just indexing for the World Cup. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, oh, actually, can I just throw in a little bit of a conspiracy thing because yeah, I, I like it. Um, <laughs> So, Seth Blatter, 
um, is is from FIFA, and he was saying that Michelle Platini, who was in FIFA or UEFA or something, lobbied super hard for Qatar to get the World Cup. Um, and I think Seth Blatter was saying that he regrets supporting Qatar's bid for the World Cup. Um, and anyway, he was like, Platini had said that um, Zarkozy or Macron or whatever the French president was, asked Platini to push for Qatar to get the World Cup. So the story is effectively that Qatar asked the French government, the French government asked Platini, who's French, mm. and Platini did things to help Qatar get the World Cup. And now you got France in a quarterfinal against England with very, very bad refereeing, very biased towards France. Um, you know, FIFA's not known for its opposite of corruption. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> maybe, maybe there's a, re- a bit of reciprocity. Um, so, what is French. FIFA as an organisation? Can you is it like list, Can you invest in it? Like, oh, finally, it'd be like <laughs> investing in clubs New South Wales or something like that. <laughs> so, um, I don't know if they're corrupt or not. They're probably really good in the community and only do wonderful things. But um, yeah. So, I'm getting got legal advice. Don't say stuff that can get me in trouble. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I don't think you can invest in them. Yeah, yeah. It could be hey. maybe the. FIFA is owned by Dubai Prince or something. Mm. You gotta you gotta talk into the mic. Yeah, sorry. It's, it's not amateur hour, mate. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, James? What's going on? Uh, good, good. Just had a uh, you know soccer game this afternoon and uh, so much soccer. We, yeah, yeah. We had a, a star ring in uh, who uh, you know scored a whole lot of goals. We won seven three, so that was pretty good. Yeah, I've heard. Is that why your hair's quite the ladies' man too, Lionel Messi. <laughs> Yeah, something uh, like that. Yeah, no, it's good. I'm, I'm trying to lose a bit of weight, and James has allowed me to play in his team sometimes, and it's good. Yeah, man. Just um, getting it's it's the most cardio I've done in like five or six years. I reckon. Like I've been yeah. so lazy and sedentary, so mm. it's good getting getting a bit of exercise. I think Andy put in four, four yeah, goals, four yeah, goals, right. a couple of assists. Yeah, Ripper. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so the newfound Ronaldo. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, Parliament, what's going on with you, man? How's yeah. uh, how's your week? How's how's things in investing? So, week you pretty much know what happened to the work. So it was yeah. pretty exciting. <laughs> Are we, you comfortable to talk about that stuff here? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, Parliament's my business partner mm-hmm. as well, and we had some some. Uh, Oh, cool. when you're saying Pablo is your partner, I completely <laughs> mis- misread the tone of that. <laughs> you really need r- to put business. <laughs> business partner, that's right. I'm not Rainbow Youth. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, Pablo's my uh, my business partner, but also like I guess one of my early mentors in investing, sort of. Uh, when when I because he used to sort of kind of mention it, and as I got curious, I just kept bugging him, bugging him, and distracting him at work and stuff. And he was very, very patient to uh, to uh, yeah, sort of inform me and get me interested in in that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, Parman, I was hoping we could pick your brains, mate. Maybe if you give us a bit about yourself, and then we'll ask you about India. Yeah. So um, last week was very interesting. I think I finally pulled the pen to invest in one of my favorite companies, which I was very heavily valued for the very longest time. Uh, it's called Deepak Nitrite, and they, they're in the production of nitrite business. Mm-hmm. And uh, Just like fertilizers and stuff? Yeah, so wide application of nitrite as a, as a uh, chemical. Mm. Uh, so basically they're the uh, one of the largest producer of sodium nitrite and nitrate in India. 
they holds about 75% of the market share. All right, we're back on. Sorry, yeah. technical <laughs> difficulties. I just, I just so, accidentally so closed. Did no, they call it Knight? Deepak Knight, right? So it's an Indian-listed company. D-E-E-P-A-K? Yes. Nitrite. That's right. Okay. So uh, a company with a long history. They've been established player in the market for about 50 years. Family-owned now. business? Uh, started as a family-owned business, but now it is listed. So the promoter still holds a fair bit of the business, which is approximately 50%. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then a major holding is uh, still with FIS and DIS in the company. And, and retail market also holds about 10%. So a good good company with the uh, uh, very ethical background. And I was uh, hoping it would be you know available at a attractive valuation sometime. And I think it just came at the right spot and I finally pulled the pen. What makes it have an ethical background? So, uh, so I, I think that that is very interesting from Indian perspective that uh, a lot of companies, more than 7,000 companies listed. Uh, when I say ethically run company, I would say a very clean management, uh, very clean accounts, uh, a business which has uh, been driving very strong growth in terms of earnings and profits, and a business that is generating free cash flow as well. So, so. Uh, Basically, where the promoters are clean and they are not just siphoning money, but then you can see capital allocation from them, uh, uh, from their free cash flow as well, uh, towards business expansion. Uh, and they pay dividends? So, uh, Deepak Nitrite is, is basically moving from being a small company into mid-cap company. So, I do not expect them to start distributing dividends right now. Uh, so, they're not known for dividends, but then uh, they've been very smart capital allocators. So they are focusing on expansion right now. So from their nitride business, they're now expanding into phenols, which is pretty interesting. So, fin, yeah, in a nutshell. Fin, fin. Phenols, basically. Uh, Sorry, is, I don't understand what you're saying there. So phenolics is a chemistry which is used in petrochemical industry oh, okay. heavily. I like phenol, like P-H-E-Y. E-N-O-L. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so basically... That was how the weekend was. So yeah, you pulled okay. the trigger after after waiting for how long? How long has it been in your sights for? Uh, two and a half years, actually. Two and a half years I've been studying the company for. So you're a, you're a value investing acolyte. Um, <laughs> Andre already said that, but that's, um, that's some good patience. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, think I, I wouldn't really say that I've been uh, uh, a great value investor, but I think I've, I've been a disciple of Mr. Warren Buffett, when it comes to value investing. So trying to apply what I've been trying to learn. So, yeah, yeah. So that's how the weekend was. <laughs> yeah. What, what, um, so it just went down in price and that got in your value range. Like you've come up with some valuation of what you think the company's worth and then the price got into a range and you're like, all right, it looks like it's, it's now trading at a discount to what it's worth. Is that? Sort of. Uh, uh, there was kind of a little more complicated with this company. What had happened in the last quarter, they recently had the earnings con call uh, and, and their uh, earnings had a serious dip, actually. Uh, and, and that dip was because one of their plant had a fire incident. So they completely lost the production in that plant, which very easily and straightforward reflected in their revenues as well. Their revenue dipped about 40%. Uh, profit after tax obviously dipped as well. But despite of that, in the con call, the CEO and the CFO were very bullish on the investments that they are making uh, in their phenol division as well. So apart from that one incident where they had a serious dip in their earnings, the market literally had beaten down the stock very badly, which is kind of a knee-jerk reaction from 
major retail investor. However, there was a there was a bit of dilution from FIS as well, foreign foreign institutional investors, uh, which was kind of a little concerned because they're generally long term investors in a company like that. So sorry, how do how do new investors entering dilute the amount of stock? Did they issue new shares to foreign investors or something? No, no. So I think uh, what I was referring is that the retail investors sold. Yeah. Like, uh, so the basically the weak hands kind of sell the shares. Domestic institutional investors heavily bought in because they believe in the growth story of the company yeah. and uh, how they continue to play, uh, you know, the major role being a, a monopoly in the sector as well. Uh, so I think that's what brought the share down and that's how it got into my eyes again. And I was happy to pay that valuation, actually. I used to work in in the federal government and one of the things we used to do was um, a petzl analysis, a pil- yeah. political economic Technological, sociological, economic, yep. and legal, um, and you'd, and you'd look at you know the implications in, in the petzl implications of, of something policy probably, mm. but um I've I've, I, I've sometimes applied that you know petzl thing to um investments, and just you know a question I'd ask in in terms of your one is that it's seventy five percent of the market it's a monopoly, is there a political risk? where it can get broken up because of its size are, are there any political risks around around the business is it in a in a state of india that i don't know that being in that particular state might involve some political problems that can risk the company i would agree yes i do run uh, pestle analysis whenever i'm screening a stock as well and i think in the indian context it holds a lot of value that you run through that screener as well, and uh, yes, it has quite a few uh, uh, drivers for growth for not only just nitrate as a business or deeper nitrate as a company, but for a lot of other companies as well. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, where it gets uh, uh, political influence is uh, because of the changes in the policy as well. Now, uh, talking from macro term, I think India is going through a great revolutionization in terms of a lot of uh, unorganized sector becoming organized sector as well. Yeah, those scamming call centers seem pretty organized these days. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that's another part of the story for another day, Andy. So, <laughs> I was too late on the rim shot. <laughs> yeah. so, so, yes, it, it does affect that uh, sense as well, that uh, uh, this business could obviously, you know, get a lot of benefit from that side as well. Uh, and, and obviously, there are more details into the business which does reflect that, yes, it may just be a, a favorable policy from the current government which is favoring the business, and it may not seem to be the same case in the long run. But I would say in the larger context, since it's a very organized player, as I was saying, that it, they've been in the market, in the business for 50 years. Mm. That's a big track record of a business is sustaining itself for the last yeah. 50 years yeah. with different governments. Yeah. So the current government has been up and running for 10 years, uh, but this business has been, you know, they've been in the business for more than 40 years. They've survived various governments and, and, they and political they landscape changes. Correct. And, and they have India was um, pretty, they were heavily socialist at one stage, weren't they? Not sure, actually, that they were or not. But was then it I Indira think, Gandhi or it wasn't she? Like a bit of a socialist or what? It's got my history all mixed up. I think the democracy finally dominated uh, her as well. So her tenure didn't really last very long. Uh, though she, her party still was in the ruling party, but then there was kind of a little change. So obviously it had 
uh, India had a kind of a exposure from that point of view as well, but highly debatable, I would say. Because there used to be a, a reputation, you know, whatever it was, 20, 30 years ago, that India was quite a bureaucratic um, type place. So I think that's sort of where the socialist side of things come, like getting things done, getting things approved was quite was quite difficult. I would suspect that's a cultural thing in India. It's just um, like you got this thing in like Central Asia and all that sort of stuff, this idea of bakshish, that you just took small bribes to grease the wheels. And I'd say that's just kind of been that way for, for a very long time. It's um, even in Lawrence of Arabia, that guy saying, I'm a river to my people or whatever. Like, you know, these ideas that the person who's the head of the clan or something like that just needs to let money flow in, in a top-down kind of way, kind of like how central banks in America help <laughs> the big players. <laughs> Maybe there's, you know, USA's got their buckshoe system in place too. We just don't call it that. How does that sound to you? I haven't really heard this term for a very long time, so thanks for mentioning that. <laughs> Bakshi. But that, 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 um when I lived in Bangladesh, that's what the, the, the beggars would say. Tip. Yeah, they say bakshish, bakshish in you. In, so, uh, but yes, I agree that yes, India has uh, enjoyed that image for the longest time. But as I was saying that in the last 10 years, there's a lot that has changed mm-hmm. in the corporate landscape and the political landscape as well. And which is not only from the perspective that the unorganized sector is moving towards organized sector. I think uh, uh, the, the entire... Sorry to, uh, to pull you up. Yeah. So do you reckon you could explain like the, I guess, the context of, of India and sort of what, like how would you characterize it now and how has it changed? So, yeah, so, so be be more specific in your question. That's very broad. Can, can we could I be can going I, for hours? If yeah, I mean the thing that interests me is that I guess you know, say maybe thirty years ago, you know, you might have thought of India as a you know a backward nation, and then all of a sudden, um, it became a sort of a technology place. Um, so that that's one one sort of bit of transformation yeah. that I thought was quite. Um, Quite amazing the the how it kind of it, it seems to have moved from being, um, I mean I, I guess a lot of it's like technology and services type type things, but it, it, you know b- prior to say the nineteen nineties it seemed to be a little bit of a like I guess a you know a, a typical sort of developing country, but there's also this like um, movement into you wonder where um, say for instance Indian companies may actually disrupt. Um, you know, American companies in the technology field or, or various bits and pieces. But um, that that's one bit that interests yeah. me. But um, Yeah. And, I would agree with yeah. James, actually. I think, uh, you know, in the last 30 mm. years, ever since the first technology mm. uh, services company uh, that was established mm. in India, uh, I think India has enjoyed that image mm. of being the back office of India, mm-hmm. you know, back office of the world. Yep. So... I think now it has come to a stage where India has started benefiting mm-hmm. uh, in, in improvising its own system, infra, and everything on the back of that technology. Yeah. And I think that change has been the most welcome change mm-hmm. uh, in the current government or in the last one decade, I would say. So a lot of, lot of sector is getting organized in the sense that a lot of systems are getting very clean as well. So that bakshish culture, which was there and which India was always... Uh, uh, the Indian image or the brand India was getting tarnished for, mm. I think that culture is going away because everything is so transparent on the back of technology now mm. as well. So I think that has been, uh, uh, you know, the major growth driver for India in terms of uh, uh, taking that clean image of corporate India mm. to the world. 
I'm not sure if I mentioned this in a in a previous podcast. You've listened to our podcast. You were the first person to listen to our podcast, I think, weren't you, Bowen? Uh, absolutely, that would be correct. Have you listened to <laughs> all of them? Not all of them, to be honest. Okay, so I was going to ask you if I mentioned this in a previous one. But um, I, I remember reading this thing, um, an analysis of this country that's just an absolute basket case and they're never going to go anywhere economically because the people aren't organised and they're lazy and um, they just can't get stuff done. Um, it was, I think it was an Australian economist in like the late 1800s or something. Um, but anyway, the, the country he was analysing was Japan. And it was like, it was the opposite of how I perceive Japan and probably how a lot of people perceive Japan. Um, but this analysis was just saying like, you know, they're, they, you know, they can't get their act together. They're, you know, useless culturally in terms of work ethic and, and, and organization and stuff. Um, and there was a response to this, um, analysis. I read an essay responding to that analysis and, and the response, um, talked about the introduction of steel, fabrication in or ma- making steel in in japan and talking about the need for timeliness in producing steel um if you don't do things the right sequence the right timing the right measures you've stuffed up the steel and you've just wasted a massive resource and um the person who wrote the essay argued that from the process of manufacturing steel the workers involved in that started to bring that into their communities, the, the, the level of accuracy, punctuality, sequencing, and it just started to permeate through society. So it kind of shifted the way Japanese society perceived time. So to, to the extent that apparently um, one of the um, bureaucrats in, in Tokyo Rail or something offered to commit seppuku for um, the train being a minute late or something. Like, do you remember that thing like ages ago? Was like, that the one where they were crashed? No, it was like a minute late and the guy offered like to, to either resign, but I thought it was to commit sepulchre, like, you know, an honourable death for the failure. Well, was, the, didn't the finance minister during the, the Asian financial blow up, he actually did it? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, um, I remember the did he like did a public apology on TV and then and committed se- sepulchred himself. Yeah, right. You know, you've heard of this. Not verified. Check that. <laughs> so you, you, you stab yeah. yourself in the belly and slide across and kill yourself because you've, you've, you know, to restore your honour. But um, I, I heard that the like a bureaucrat offered to commit seppuku for a, a train being a minute late or something. So from that article, or you know, the essay or the analysis of Japan in the late eighteen hundreds or wherever it was, I found it weird too. It was written at such a time when Japan seemed to be emerging as um, you know, I think they were already like you know, were, were close to the time they beat Russia in that war over that island or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it was weird, like, to see that because it seemed like Japan already had their act together at that stage. Um, but yeah, to, to the idea that their concept of time, like, evolved so rapidly and extremely. And it, it occurs to me that in India, if they're getting all these IT workers, and I don't know anything about computer coding, but you have if then propositions, right? Um, in, in, in code, I think. So if, if A then B, if B then C or whatever. And it's, um, I think that's what binary ultimately is just if then chains, um, they get more complicated. But you have to have certain levels of, um, organization, logic and sequencing in IT. Um, and, and I guess even the, the, the seeking of elegant and efficient solutions, um, you'd think, you know, not, not doing lines and lines of code, um, when you, when you, when you can do fewer lines. Um, so I'd imagine, there's a chance of that you could have IT workers who then start bringing that into their own, um, you know, domestic environments, and that mentality just starts to spread 
as well. So, you know, the IT workers um, are watching their parents prepare food and they're like, why don't you do it this way and that way and this way? That's he's more efficient and start coaching their parents on, you know, efficient food preparation and, yeah, various other aspects and just kind of ripples through the culture. Who knows? I speculate. Yeah, no, I would say, uh, you know, in, in my humble experience, I've seen that sort of story play out as well. Uh, and I think uh, that has been the biggest cultural change, not just accepting things the way they have been told to you, but just kind of challenging it mm. culturally as well. And, uh, and I think that has brought a lot of change as well. Mm. So I think somewhere, yes, it would it would connect the dots with what you're saying, Andy. So what was it like being uh, on the inside of the 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 middle class explosion in India? Well, since I've lived through that change, I think it's been quite phenomenal. I think yeah. um, it's 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 far far too difficult to comprehend that mm. what I've seen change in terms of different cities, in terms of these you know the opportunities, in terms of the size of the opportunities mm. uh, that are coming across. I think one very uh, uh, big and evident one is IPL. You know, if we just look at trying to understand Indian. Uh, uh, Indian economy or Indian size of economy, uh, then I think the perfect analogy is cricket. Mm. You know, obviously half of the nation plays cricket mm. and uh, and the entire nation loves cricket. Yeah. So I, I think what IPL has done to cricket in India and the image of uh, India in the world of cricket, uh, I think the same thing possibly is happening through the changes of policy and structuring of every organization uh, is what is happening, is, is what is doing to the uh, Indian economy and the global image of India as well. Mm. So the businesses leading the government in, in the... I've heard that the Modi government's been very friendly to business and, and made positive reforms. Is, is the government leading this or are businesses kind of like leading the government and the government's just anticipating what businesses want and, and acting on, on behalf of ultimately business guidance? I would agree with the latter. I think the Indian businesses are very strong. There's a very strong entrepreneurship which is happening in the country, and they are leading the change. For the first time, I think there is a government which is very favorable of businesses, and they've been outright listening uh, and and making policy, policies which are conducive for these businesses to to you know take the progress or the growth ahead. So they're kind of well. getting out of the way. More, more, more than leading the way, that is getting out of the way. Maybe. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I would say that you know, uh, you know, one such thing which I would talk about is that uh, you know one of the first ID companies in India, which was formed back in 1980s, and they have been the epitome of growth on IT uh, worldwide. Is called Infosys, yep. and uh, Infosys is listed in Nasdaq as well, and they've done wonders for uh, uh, investors in terms of compounding their uh, uh, investments. Uh, that company was headed by two gentlemen who formed the company. One is Narayan Murthy and the second gentleman is Nandan Nilekni. Nandan Nilekni actually left uh, 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 Infosys and, uh, and, and asked Modi government to, to form a system of registering every Indian and opening a banking account for every Indian so that the subsidies can be passed on to uh, the end user more ethically without losing the money in the system itself, which was mostly the case which you highlighted as well. And I think that one policy in itself has completely transformed how the money is being distributed or the subsidies are being passed on to the end user. And on the back of that, there's been such a phenomenal economic growth which has happened 
that people are just getting pulled out of the poverty index much faster than it has ever happened in the 75 years of independent Indian history. Well. Yeah, because that's really interesting. Just You just kind of reminded me of the, there was a, um, uh, uh, what would you call it, like a, um, you know, a study of um, providing, um, basically this is just in Western countries, providing, um, uh, getting homeless people off the street. And they looked at, you know, do we, you know, do we build more accommodation, create, create more, you know, places for people and, you know, what services do we provide for them? And one of the things that they, they did is this is how much we're going to allocate. Why don't we just give the money straight to the, to the homeless person? And there was a, a, a large number of situations where the most efficient thing to do was just to give the money to the homeless person and they'd go and find a mate yeah. who they could live in and then they could, you know, get some clothes and, you know, imp- improve their life enough yeah. to, you know, and p- pay some rent to their mate or whatever. And um, and that was actually j- just by devolving the money down to the the individual was in many cases a um, a more efficient way of, of getting people to, to get up and go. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like it, 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 in some ways that making sure that money doesn't get lost in the system and it ends up right down with the, the people who need it that it also kind of creates a, the potential for more entrepreneurial spirit because they've got the, the funding to um, get things done. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. And, and I'm just supporting Andy's point as well mm. that, you know, I think it is more of the government getting out mm. of the way mm. and just letting the corporate India mm. who's created successful companies mm. and successful case studies mm. to resolve the problems mm. of the country as well. Did India do the, uh, the micro-loan thing? Microfinance. Oh, yeah, yeah. I yeah, was Bangladesh. Oh, no, he's a yeah, Bangladesh. Well, that's what was good because one – Kiva. I remember, yeah, but Bangladesh, they did the thing like to, to get the agriculture and, and particularly to get women uh, sort of out of poverty. The, they did the microloans thing. Was that was that a thing for you guys? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Massive. I think uh, uh, I'm a big fan of a company which provides uh, microloans in yeah. India. I'm a very early investor in that. They're a for-profit company or – Yes, they're a for-profit company and uh, – and a very successful case study, just the model how it is being set up to provide, uh, it's called uh, uh, MSME loans, which means medium-sized uh, uh, companies loans or something uh, for uh, women entrepreneurship or for for small investors or small entrepreneurs to yep. get started uh, against a very small security. So uh, so, what, so what sizes are we talking here? Uh, so we're talking about uh, tune of let's say 10,000 Indian rupees, which means yeah. roughly $200, yeah. Aussie dollars, uh, to up to about 5 lakh rupees or 10 lakh rupees, which is about $20,000 yep. or something. So that sort of loan to just get them started. And a very successful case study of that is a company called Lizard Papad in India. So they make papadums. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's it. I love papadums. That's what they do. Yeah. So it's a, it's a huge brand which is created by women in the villages who just knew how to make poppadums, actually. Mm. And they just provided them enough infrastructure to package them and get them to the A and B tier cities of the India. Yeah. That's it. And it's an incredible success story. They are a multi-million dollar business today. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you had a couple of uh, slides that you wanted to uh, take us through there, Parwan. Oh, uh, before you get into that, yeah. um, <clears throat> with with the thing about the money getting in, in the hands of the Indian people directly, that... um. 
the guy that used to work at Facebook, who's like Sri Lankan heritage, but he's like a Canadian dude. What's his name? Chamath. Chamath Palatapia. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He was saying the Bitcoin and that sort of technology is really important in places like Sri Lanka because you go to the Western Union to get the money that your family is remitting back home and there's standover guys taking like 10% as soon as you, oh. you know, take the withdrawal from Western Union. And, and the Bitcoin stops those standover guys taking the money. Um, so he was saying it was very empowering in, in, in poorer um, areas and, and, and more, um, I guess, crime-ridden areas. Um, another thought I had was um, in the medieval England, I think the sheriff would have to pay um, to become the sheriff. So you, you gather money and, and you'd you know, make your bid to become sheriff and then you would collect money from arresting people, putting them in jail, and then their families would bail them out. So it was like a, a business model. Um, and Never heard of that, but just never too late. Yeah, so I mean, like, I think that was a medieval English thing. Um, uh, the point is, you know, you got, you got, you got uh, effectively a um, state-backed um, enterprise that, that can use force to, to get what they want, right? Um, you, you could imagine in India, there's a lot of um, state-backed um, players who were given money to distribute to the poor people and just kept it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, like getting, getting rid of those state-backed players who have a financial incentive and moral hazard. Um, yeah, even you know, in the West, you hear about these um, charities where 90% goes to administration costs and 10% goes to the actual people in need it and it's you know just uh, uh, you know it's a, a rich white person's thing to do to say they run a charity but they just keep most of the money for themselves anyway so yeah maybe right. that was the origination of the term bakshis i believe <laughs> oh right yeah so instead of you giving me i'll take it <laughs> yeah but you know the first part andy that you mentioned and i was just uh, i have discussed this with andre uh, previously as well that how blockchain as a technology has really impacted uh, how the money is being transferred. And I think I've seen this change uh, when I moved to Australia back in 2016. And I would send money through Western Union and it would take about three days. Apart from taking three days, uh, there's a substantial amount of cost that you have to incur as well, right? Uh, but this all changed back in 2019 when one of the uh, largest retail bank of India who I bank with, ICICI, they partnered with a... a, a with a, with a blockchain technology called Stellar Lumens, right? And I didn't know about all that. It just happened one fine day that uh, I got a SMS text saying that you can now transfer money with ICICI without uh, having to deal with any third party, right? So I tried it for the first time, and in a blink of eye, the money landed in my account. Literally, I refreshed my screen, and it landed there. And that's what got my curiosity to understand that how's that happening now? And later only to find out that it's actually a blockchain technology which has confirmed the payment and that has made the systems wonder, actually. So I've been a direct beneficiary of that blockchain technology, uh, which I still uh, uh, bank with ICICI till date. Yeah, and not DeFi. Blockchain, but not DeFi. Not and DeFi, successful. yes. <laughs> um, probably regulated. Yes. Not DeFi, blockchain technology. And that, that's the thing. I think a lot of these crypto people, you know, they're obsessed with it being DeFi, not regulated, changing the world. And it's like, there's Pardon nothing my to say. But DeFi? What's that, sorry? 
DeFi? Definance. Ah, like definance. So decentralized. Yeah, sorry, decentralized finance. Um, yeah, so, you know, there's, there's, that, there's, that, there's that narrative, but in practice, there's nothing to say any centralized entity can't just say this is a good piece of technology. We'll write the code ourselves and apply it ourselves. But that also means that you're creating your own currency. And it's not a state-owned currency. Your right? bank. Oh, a DeFi, basically. No, no, but I'm you're saying... You're decentralizing finance by creating your own uh, currency and saying that you deal with my currency instead of dealing with dollar or rupee. Yeah, what, what, what I'm saying or trying to say is that the crypto narrative is often around DeFi and um, the crypto is in, in direct contrast and opposition to established finance, Right. But you've given a case study of established finance using blockchain blockchain technology to enhance its product offering. And that, that seems to be a thing that's often ignored in the crypto space. It's like, you know, this blockchain's wonderful, blah, blah, blah. It's like you don't monopolize blockchain like that. The cat's out of the bag. The establishment can use blockchain. You know, that, that concept's there, the proof of stake concept. So it's like blockchain will change the world doesn't mean that the DeFi blockchain will change the world. It could be completely established finance using blockchain and changing the world. Yeah, that is an interesting point in that, that you know, the I guess the kind of Bitcoin ideologues are all about, oh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to have our own private money, you know, we'll have a modern system of the old, you know, exchangeable gold, which is not owned by, you know, controlled by the government. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. traded um, by individuals. Um and the market pro- determines the price rather than central banks fiddling around with stuff. Um, but, yeah, but it is is um, interesting because that actually doesn't seem to have taken a lot of hold on the, the money, like on people's transactions. Like there's not a lot of transactions of people using uh, cryptocurrencies to actually buy stuff in the economy. Yeah. Um, it's all about – it's it's ended up being a lot about speculation. Um, but – that's a, as Andy was saying, that's a really good example of an application of the technology in, a, in an existing financial institution to make things mm. work. But yeah. I have heard about, I think this was again that Shamath Palatapaya. Uh, that's correct, we're nearly there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think he was also saying that you had like businesses in China that would buy something off a business in Indonesia. Um, you know, like, you know, maybe, you know, Chinese T-shirt manufacturer gets some, you know, half-finished product from Indonesia and they have to transfer the yuan or renminbi into US dollars, into rupiah yeah. that goes back to US dollars, that goes back to yuan or renminbi. And just the ticket clipping from the yeah. financial institutions there ends up being several percentage points. Yep. And it's like if you're thin margin manufacturers, maybe you – you know, you sell it for 100 but it costs you $90 to make. Um, and then the banks take 6% mm. in all the transfer fees. So your profit's only, you know, yeah. 4 out of $100. Yeah. Um, whereas, so apparently these guys were starting to use um, crypto as, I guess, you know, ledgers between themselves to, to get, to move outside the banking system and, and the expense of exchange fees mm-hmm. and boost their profits because of that. Anyway. Mm. So, Pawan, you had these uh, these two two uh, infographics you wanted to share with us. Yeah, I'll just quickly uh, talk about this. This is actually a screenshot of the last twenty years 
of uh, some of the uh, global markets return in uh, in in uh, pure dollar returns so uh, i think india when it gets written off as a poor country sometimes and people don't understand the power of that economy which has grown to the size of the fifth largest economy in the world right now with 3 and a half trillion dollar if you see this infographic you will see that nifty 50 which is one of the index in india has given in last 20 year a total dollar return of 14.2% kaga which is only next to kaga meaning uh, sorry the compounded annual growth return mm-hmm. uh, of uh, of 14.2% in dollar terms only next to indonesia mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of uh, uh, people globally and especially in india lose their sleep over china and if you mm-hmm. see the chinese return of the chi- shanghai composite is only 6.2% mm-hmm. Um I um my target is 10% return in a year. There you so go. ASX 200 10.9. There you go. So yeah, like yeah, my mine's to basically do as well as the ASX 200. So yeah, 10 10%. I'm 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 theoretically happy with 10% a year. Um obviously I'd like more and and, and get more and, and do things to get more. But um yeah, if if someone said you could just park your money and get 14.2.14.2% compound for 20 years, I'd you know take that as a second yeah. I'd be a very happy <laughs> man I mean, that's, that's and then borrow some money and buy some more <laughs> that's backwards looking obviously retrospective yeah, 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 yeah. but yeah like that's um that's I'd, I'd be very happy with those returns yeah i forgot who was talking about there was uh i was, I was some there was a new story talking about or maybe it was an article in the australian but talking about uh projected growth outcomes over the next couple of years and a few countries are going to sort of sit still or uh like australia and stuff like that most people are going to go backwards but india they're projecting like 6 and 7% growth year like for the next 2 or 3 years or something like that. Are you talking about um GDP growth or yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. 6 or yeah. 7%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like 6.6.8% and stuff yeah. like that and I think that's a very conservative view actually. Uh, yeah. last quarter uh Indian GDP grew by 7.8%. Uh the only large economy in the world which is uh, as per IMF uh uh one publication which has never been uh, favoring indian and indian economy was economist yeah and they have finally agreed in the last publication that india is going to register double digit growth mm. in 2023 and ongoing for at least a decade mm. if not two have you guys heard of prem watsa no you haven't heard of prem watsa not not really oh shame have you no well um the canadian warren buffett you guys haven't heard of prem watsa no man Um he's a Canadian Warren Buffett. Um deep value. Like he bought BlackBerry. I think it went down from like $40 to $10 or whatever, but um Fairfax Holdings and he's got a um Fairfax India Holdings cuz he's Indian heritage. Um and I I held that years ago Fairfax India Holdings because I didn't trust India like with all the corruption and everything. I you know I don't know what their accounting is like. I don't know if they bribe the auditors. It's not It's not like um very common. It's not like western auditors seem to have a good track record either though to be fair like you know the the big four accounting firms seem to miss things every now and then um <laughs> astonishingly um but yeah I was like well I trust Prem Watsa as a Canadian Warren Buffett to to do good um diligence on on various businesses um yeah I I haven't seen where that's been since I think fih.to is the code if you want to look at it and it's compound annual growth rate but it'll be interesting to see if um prem has has beaten um .to because that's a Toronto stock exchange I think 
Um, be interesting to see if he's beaten the nifty um, 50. And yeah, if you guys in the audience and, and at this table don't know who Prem Watson is, check this dude out. He's um he's a he's a How real value Prem, investor. P R E M deep value. I've got a um uh yeah, I respect that dude. Yeah, okay. Bullish on India. There you go. Yeah, so let's see how the Fairfax has gone. Oh, down annual. This well, is just yeah. on Yahoo Finance. Um, Max? Oh, pretty flat. But it's a, not a, it's a reasonably short period of time. Yeah, so from 15 to, yeah, basically no movement. But yeah, anyway, you can check that, check that out in Fairfax and what it holds. The thing I used to do is um, look at what value investors would hold and then yeah. try and pick ideas from their portfolios. So Yeah, I think that's very interesting from, uh, you know, from foreign institutional investors, I definitely love to read what, what they're investing because that's not only uh, just from the perspective that what they consider an ethically run company, but also uh, that there's a serious money that flows into those those companies there. You've but, mentioned ethically run company twice. Yeah. I don't think we've ever mentioned ethics in companies. <laughs> like, there's not a gangster rules to mention it, obviously, but what, why are you mentioning ethically as a thing? So in Indian context, yes, it, it holds a lot of value. Like I was saying earlier that out of 7,500 companies roughly listed, I would say only 75 companies will be investable. As in not dodgy? Correct. And okay. and, and I think you did mention uh, previously saying that we always talk about auditing. Uh, but in India, that term is all actually called forensic auditing, which means there's a lot of promoters who will find creative ways to siphon the money, siphon the profits, and not pass it on to the stage, uh, to the stakeholders. Yeah. Um Who's it? Jim Chanos. Um, he's a um, kinikos, um, which means a cynic in Greek. Um, allegedly, his um, Twitter handle is Diogenes, but he never admits to being Diogenes as a Twitter handle. I think um, Diogenes was one of the cynics in, in ancient Greece. Um, I think he teaches a forensic accounting course because he's a um, short seller. He's a very famous short seller. He's, um, he's had his ass handed to him um, shorting Tesla. Um, I think, and I don't know if his clothes are shorts, but yeah, he's um, he's into the forensic accounting, and I, I I would really like to have that skill, forensic accounting. I feel like that's something um, I, I should develop as a skill. And that that sort of differential in in uh, I guess ethically run business and not that actually provides opportunities, right? Because I was watching a uh, Monesh Pabrai lecture, and he was mm-hmm. talking about, was it Sun, Sun, something? SunTech Reality was Suntech. his famous investment, yes. Yeah, so, and he was saying he kept his eye on this company because he thought it was real run, but it wasn't a front runner. But then all these other, like, corrupt companies started so, sort of... Uh, yeah, so SunTech Reality is basically one of the real estate companies. Yeah. The listed, and there are not many listed real estate companies in India. Yeah. Uh, and I think his, uh, I, I did hear that lecture as well. Yeah. So I think what he was trying to highlight Sorry was... Sorry if I've mischaracterized what he said. Yeah, yeah. no, no. He, he did exactly said the same thing. And, and uh, I think what he was trying to highlight in, in, in that entire chat was uh, that how SunTech Reality had a great, strong fundamental and balance sheet. Mm. And it was very surprising for him to understand that why they are not... Why the valuations are not reflecting. So, mm. uh, you know, the price to earning multiple was not really reflecting. It was still single digit when he bought it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and there was every reason for that to be in double digit yep. uh, for the price to earning. So I think he bought it as a 
fun bet with one of his was that the friend. is that the same one with the with the mastercard where the guys yes. like, he's like dude you got to get rid of mastercard correct so <laughs> yeah. so uh yeah that's how he uh, made a small position uh, yeah. i mean still about 100 to 100 million dollars yeah small position for him for us <laughs> in any terms but uh, yes and and then he obviously had great returns yeah uh, in a short term on that but i i think he's taking it as a long bet that the company will emerge as uh, one of the most uh, organized player in a very unorganized market as the space gets mm. tightened so so we were talking just before the show about um because I find it quite surprising that obviously uh, global GDP and uh, stock market representation don't always align or quite often don't align. Like, you know, say the US might be 60% of global stock markets um, and it's about a quarter of global GDP. And we just say, I was just, I guess, noting that, that, that India seems to be well underrepresented in terms of the, you know, the its stock market um, representation in uh, global index. I don't know, obviously, that this comes down to, you know, market capitalization and things like that. Um, but do, do you see there being a, a, I guess, a future where, um, I guess, the Indian stock market more, more reflects its, you know, actual global GDP um, proportion, if that makes sense? I, I think yes. I was reading a very interesting report. Let me just see if I can quickly yeah. share that with Andre mm. and put it up on the screen. But uh, Not this one? Uh, not that one, actually. I'm just going to share it with you. Because it must be, India is not even a large portion of the Emerging Markets Index. Um, and, you know, it, it's very it's very strange because, I mean, uh, I'm not... I, don't know off the top of my head the GDP of India, but it must be sort of more than ten percent of global GDP, surely. If it's in the top five, yeah. um, maybe a lot of Indian businesses are family owned and they're not listed. That's relevant, yeah. Mm. Um, one thing uh, this this audio book I've been listening to, Peter Zion, into uh, uh, the world is just the beginning. He was saying, yeah, bullish on India, um, but the the massive growth. Uh, just through natu- natural market cycles, a big, obviously it will have a big crash or a couple of big crashes built into it. What do you think about that? So I think, uh, you know, the entire narrative for uh, for the India to be, you know, that next global superpower in terms of economies mm. uh, is, is great. Uh, but I reckon that there's, there's a lot of slips between the mm. cup and the lip kind of story can mm. still play. And this, uh, will the government always be supporting uh, oh, I think you didn't in, attach uh, that bone. <laughs> Sorry. Take issues, mm. Indian Indian IT <laughs> fixing it up. I know, mm. <laughs> but, but I mean, it is. It's it's surprising to me because I would have thought that um, you know, uh, say for instance, you know, people have invested a lot in China over mm. the last you know couple of decades, or yeah. especially in the last decade or so. Um, uh, you'd think that uh, you know a you know major glo- like the world's largest democracy would be a much more um, compelling yeah. place to to put your money than a, than mm. a you know a communist regime. The world's yeah. most populous free market potentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. potentially free market. Mm. So probably a hybrid free market at the moment. Mm. Well, I mean, you could. Ha- I, mean, I guess is it a sort of a heavy, more heavily regulated free market than because every every free market's 
you know, not really free. There's no yeah, yeah. There's, there's there's no free markets, but um, there's just combinations of government regulation and and you know free enterprise, I guess. Well, if, like in countries having economic success, mm. um, probably shouldn't be sur- surprising if you look at history. Mm. Like India had a, a, a mass of the wealth mm. of the world. Yep. Until the English um, reallocated it. <laughs> I'm now, I'm recording again. We're back live after So then I said, do you prefer Visa or American Express? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I prefer UPI. Uh, when, I was in, um, when I was in high school, um, if, if, you know, hot babes would walk past... I'd, um, and they were say, walking past I'd, you. I'd say to my friends, I'm like, just act like I've said a really funny joke. And, and that's like my, my punchline would be, so then I said, do you prefer Visa or American Express? And my friends would all go, ha, 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 like I said a really funny joke. <laughs> Didn't work. <laughs> so what, what were you, what you you were proposing about schedule and questions? Of well, power? I don't know what your schedule of questions is, but I, I'd be curious um, to know or, or to hear from Parwan um, if he has learned anything from listening to the podcast or... Um, has any, yeah, like has it, has it shaped um, his thinking or changed his thinking? Um, you know, has he got any value as a as a listener and, and where that value is if, if he's got value? Should should we just hold that for the second? Let Palin do the... Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and then and then click onto that. Well, yeah, if Andre lets us. Cool. Uh, do whatever you want. Whatever you... Yeah, yeah. So, so where were we up to? What was the question that we... <laughs> It was to, but it was to do with like GDP and and you know, yeah, I guess like uh, uh, you know uh, business or stock market allocation of of Indian businesses and yeah and uh, you know it, it seems to be basically a, why the Indian stock market doesn't have a bigger share of global market value in stock markets and, and given the size of its GDP yeah yeah that was the yep. question and I speculated that maybe there's lots of family owned businesses. Um, it's not like all, all Indian businesses trading at one time's earnings, right? Get it. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is yeah. a very interesting uh, uh, screen that I would like to share. Yeah. It's it's a projection and a report which is compiled by Price Waterkuba House, mm-hmm. PwC, and uh, there's a small slide which explains where India's standing was in terms of global GDP mm-hmm. in 2016 mm-hmm. and where it is headed in terms of by 2050. Oh, right, yep. So it is predicted to be the second largest uh, economy of the world, mm-hmm. replacing US by 2050. Wow. So these are the growth projections, actually. So this it's this was done. Era. When did PwC do this? Because um, they obviously haven't read Peter Zihan <laughs> with China being number one still. And um, if you look at the geopolitics, um, it's it's really hard for me to see China being number one. Um, you know, with America just um, slowly tightening the vice. His on China. perspective is full on, man. Like in terms of, particularly for China, China and Russia, like that China is pretty much going to wrap up shop in the next decade or two. Mass famine, like demographic, um, demographic disaster. collapse, man. Like, yeah. and, uh, and and that's obviously very different in in India, which has a much more. Uh, my understanding was with the Indian demographics, the birth rates coming down, and yeah. it's getting. Close to or roundabout replacement level, which is kind of yeah. You almost get that demographic dividend when you get to when your birth rate comes down, but yeah. d- but then you don't go to 
negative and then yeah. wait, wait 20 years and then you get the bad side of that. Do you know? What, do you understand what James is talking about here, Paul? Yeah, yeah so yeah. Uh, very interesting. I think uh, a couple of weeks back, Andre and myself were talking about this. The rebirth rate is second highest in the world in India Who's right now highest? at 2.8. Who's the highest? Uh and 2.8 is astonishing to it's me. It's astonishing, actually. Uh, You'd imagine a lot of um, independent Indian women, and I've met some. Um, I don't know if she's my cousin or not, but we have this, um, like we call her cousin, Renella. And, um, so you have like Indian heritage? Well, my mom was born in India and came yeah. over when she was 16. Yeah. Um, and we've got family friends in India, and I don't know who Renella is, but I thought she was my cousin, but she might not be. Mm. Um but yeah, she came over and uh, like my mom as well. Like there's a, there's a bit of a um, like wanting to assert yourself and argue and challenge in conversation thing that I've noticed in Indian women. And um, I don't – like women from India, I guess. It, not My mom's not Indian. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's hard to see uh, like Renella, my cousin, if she's my cousin, um, entering the workforce – having her own income and then taking anything like, you know, taking any stick from a dude. It's yeah. Like, you know, it's like, you know, you know, like, you know, I'm a powered woman or whatever. Yeah. 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 Sisters doing it for themselves. So yeah. they're also breeding 2.8 kids per um, sister. Each sister has 2.8 kids coming out of her. Yeah. So I, I, I it's hard to say that. I just, I, I find that really hard to say. And I was in India. Um, I, I was in India in 20, I don't know, 11 or 12 or something like that. And I was um, at a bar near the airport and there was a guy with his hands like touching his girlfriend or whatever and I think he kissed her on the cheek or whatever. And I was kind of like, oh, I'm not expecting this sort of thing in India. Like I remember like that being like a, a no-no and I'm like, oh, look, guys, I, you know, you don't want to interrupt, um, you know, you look like you're on a date or whatever. Um, your interactions seem very Western to me. Um I thought this um, public display of affection and all that sort of stuff really wasn't on. And the guy was kind of like, yeah, that used to be the case. We don't really care anymore. I was just like, oh, well, I I would not have expected that. Um, Apparently in Korea, when I was living in Korea, um, there's like women of a certain age, very old fashioned, like um, no sex before marriage kind of thing. And then the next year, that it's like, no, nah, we don't care about any of that sort of stuff. It's like, it's like literally like a line in the sand based on a given year um, for women of a certain age. I don't know if that's entirely true, but that, that's um, what was explained to me by Westerners, but also a Korean chick who didn't have sex with me. Because <laughs> she was of that generation. <laughs> I was actually so wondering said, where this conversation is <laughs> leading. Like, no, one not. year younger than I would. But, yeah. but no. And, no. Uh, and yeah, one year younger, was- right? But they also add a year. Like, like a Korean who's 22 is actually 21. They add a year. So, like, yeah. So prudish. <laughs> So, Andy, which year was this when you were visiting India? I was like 2011 or 12 or something. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was saying, that, you know, the global Mm. image of India is actually uh, at least a decade old. Mm. (laughs) So, if you would go to India now, I reckon that you will be very impressed with the kind of development which has happened in every front, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of how the population is, uh, you know, the per capita income has come up as well. And everything, so it's becoming a very fluent society, and it surprises me as well. I've, I've been out of the country for five years. When I go back, it really pleasantly surprises me. So I've, got, I've got an investment for you in India. 
um, a face bleaching company. Because on a lot of the advertising I saw back then, they'd um, make themselves a bit more pale in the thing. Isn't there like something with... Um, like, Bleach? Yeah, yeah. Like, is, is that a listed company? No, no, I'm saying it would be a good investment, right? Because um, like a lot of the advertising was Indians, um, but more pale. Like, um, yeah, less, less dark skin. And that's a, that's a thing in a lot of Asia, I think. They try and make their, um, their skin lighter toned. So, what a business true? like that. Yes and no both. So, if, yeah. if I were to talk about a listed company in this space. No, I'm just saying. Is, that would for like, anyone listening, I had a shocked look on my face. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's a, it, the idea is, um, if you're, my understanding, and this could be wrong, that in, in Asia, the idea was that if you're dark skinned, that means mm. you've been working in the sun. Yeah. Um, which means you're of a certain class group. Yep. And pale skinned people spend less time outdoors working yeah. and the, the paleness is um, a, a reflection of wealth. We had that explained to us in China, like some people, that, some acquaintances of ours there. They wore gloves everywhere, like, like if they were driving a car or going for a walk, gloves and hats and stuff like that. And like it was like somewhere, like why are you wearing gloves? And the, that exact reason. Yeah. So if you've got a bigger middle class, yeah. and you know the middle class will buy their um, what are those stupid handbags that people buy? Louis Vuitton handbag. I saw um, a Dero yesterday with a Louis Vuitton tattoo on the back of their neck. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe his name was Louis Vuitton. <laughs> it's like you know, oh, I didn't finish that. It was it was a it was a young lady. Um, <laughs> her name, yeah, Louise Vuitton. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so like you know, um, and 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 certain cultures like to show wealth. Yeah. Um, like I was speaking to a, a Korean dude who's Aussie, and he was saying how he like went out drinking and you know he's spending extra dollars on drinks or whatever. Mm. And he's like, you know, and and it's tough because as an Asian guy, you really want to show how rich you are, <laughs> so you have to spend more money on things. And that was him saying it. Oh, yeah. That's not me. Um, yeah, so you can imagine that there'd be um, an increase in um, some of these products. But with that said, maybe there's also more nationalism and, and, and pride in saying, no, um, you know, the Brits were the pale people and we want to yeah. have our own identity. And, and maybe you've got you to, you know, look at second order things as well. So as, I would as say the world goes, is becoming beige. Yeah, yeah. More and more beige with 1.35 billion people. Yeah, caramel. Representing only yeah. India. Yeah, yeah. yeah. everyone, everyone will be caramel at some point, yeah. <clears throat> Which would be good. I hate wearing sunscreen, so. <laughs> so where were we with this? The sidetrack. Nothing. I think it just a uh, slide goes on to show that, you know, what uh, from the world context, what Indian GDP will represent in times to come. So by 2050, uh, 15% of the world GDP uh, will be represented by uh, India. And and given what we were saying as well, with obviously with uh, Peter Zion stuff, yeah, yeah, and Peter Zion would obviously be strongly of the view that China will not be number one, yeah. So that that actually is quite some, significant. Some, some pretty dark outcomes mm. or proposed mm. outcomes in mm. that book. Hey, it's uh, I was joking with Parwin that I think I'll either move to uh, India or America. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but, but he, a, he would it, say Australia is fine. Like he would say Australia's demographic. He, he right. does. He, yeah. he doesn't mind Australia. He doesn't mind Argentina. Yeah. Um, and in, and also the yeah Southeast Asia will kind of rise up a bit. So Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, and stuff like that. Particularly Indonesia because they're they're like really uh, hydrocarbon rich, oil and coal and stuff. And uh, and his his uh, view on on electrification and and uh, and uh, green green energy and 
and all that's it's oh you, you stay up there man i think my uh my graphics port's knackered um but, he's, uh, he's not he's not convinced about yeah. the green energy stuff well this so in terms of the the elements that we need for batteries is not enough and it's really centralized centralized in the congo um he's saying on average when the when the when the world starts to deglobalize he speculates that people are going to go back to coal and like shitty coal because it's everywhere that li- lignite coal and and uh and uh yeah what we should be doing is tackling it from all angles so like solar plus plus coal plus nuclear all that sort of thing otherwise cause if we go too much into the just the renewables on their own will end up with like unusable grid and stuff. And I mean, was uh, he saying uh, this sort of stuff before grid problems and and oh, no, the Russia? Book came, out, book came out this year. Yeah, like like you know, so he probably wrote it before the Russia stuff because yep. like all this um, unreliable renewables has like really um, been highlighted post Russia. Um, you know, stuff in Europe, and, and and it seems like as Europe has the issue with unreliable renewables. So I wonder if he's you know, written this after the event mm. and, you know, says what's already happening will happen or, or if he's actually predicted it. I, yeah. I, I think he's a little bit um, – uh, there's a number of things I don't think he's quite right on. I, I, I don't sort of disagree that, that nuclear – you know, we underuse nuclear. Mm. Um, but I think a lot of people get the – the say, for instance, the electrification story a bit wrong because they're yeah. looking at – how the system works now, yeah. Without looking how, at how the system will work, and one of the very obvious things that's happening is the growth in electric vehicles is is extremely fast in terms in percentage terms. You know, we're, we're up around. I think China's the largest car market in the world at the moment, yeah. And they've got latest quarter, they're thirty seven percent of their vehicles are electric vehicles. Mm. That were sold yeah. or that are on yeah, the road. New, new 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 vehicles. Vehicle sales. Vehicle sales. So okay. yeah, and it looks like maybe twenty twenty five, twenty twenty six they'll be at hundred percent. That's the end of yeah, the right. of the largest car market in the world being electric. The, How many cars the, are being sold if they're all locked down? Oh well Or are they all locked down? Like you know you see the lockdown stuff in China, it's like was that like, you know, twenty seven cars sold? No, I think it's like no, I think they're twenty million dollar twenty million Car a year market mm. type thing. Um, so that hasn't slowed with a uh, COVID lockdowns or anything. I don't. I don't know the exact um, numbers, but the percentages are is thirty seven percent, and they are the largest car market in the world. And they would be the same thing would probably, you know, have happened to you know Western Europe and the United States and over the COVID whatever. I mean, it does. It, it doesn't really matter. We know. Within a few years, they're, they're going to be doing 100% um, electric vehicles. I think every, you know, whether it's the United States and Europe as well, will be will have the same sort of thing. But the, the, I guess the thing is that doesn't get taken into account is people, the problem with renewables is storage. Because, yep. you know, wind and solar are much, <clears throat> much cheaper than, than you know, um, Coal and and gas, etc. Mm. As in, to produce a kilowatt hour of yeah. electricity, it costs less money using renewables than it does um, hydro or sorry, carbon based yes. fuel sources. Yes, over a full life cycle, include you know creating the thing and then letting it run. Yeah, um, whether it's a coal fired power station yeah. or gas or you know turbines or whatever it is. Um, and the but the problem is we we can't efficiently use the electricity because it's 
it's variable. Yep. And as soon as you have a high percentage of batteries on the grid, it doesn't matter. Yep. Because you've got because they go both ways as well. Like yep. the electric vehicles have, like so for instance, Tesla has auto bidder, mm. which is basically we will you know uh, we will buy electricity when it's cheap. You can just have it like that. I don't think they've got it in activated in their cars at the moment, but you can buy electricity when it's cheap and you can sell it when it's expensive. So yeah. you can you can and cars are basically plugged in ninety five percent of the time or, or, or not being used ninety five percent of the time, which means they can basically be plugged in. Mm. Um, and the average, say, something like a, a Tesla would pro- like a Model Three Tesla would probably save something like three to four days of enough power for, to run your house for three to four days. So, yeah, I so, mean, basically the vehicle fleet is, the battery vehicle fleet is a giant decentralised battery. Yes. Um, so it's and, like, and you know, the government, South Australian government builds a massive battery. Um, it's like, cool, um, a thousand cars is also a massive battery. They're just not in the one spot. Yeah. And, and, and so the, 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 the thing is that as soon as you have high electric vehicle penetration and you have the just the um, you know the software type um, uh, you know ability to both feed in and feed out back to the grid and and it's all done on a, on a, a sort of an economic basis so yeah. when electricity is expensive you sell yeah and when electricity is cheap you recharge yeah which basically means for most most people you know uh, if you're running renewables say you're running a lot of wind there's always too much wind at night because everyone's asleep there's very little you know, power being used. Yeah. Um, so you have this surplus of wind, which currently mm. is just wasted. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it means you can run a lot higher sort of percentage of renewables on the grid mm. and they're totally viable because there's always a buyer. Yeah. And, and when you need to draw down, there's always an, an ability to, yeah. you know, to, to, to draw that back down. You need a, a, a higher penetration of electric vehicles. Yeah. But this kind of thing is... To me, it just seems inevitable. It's, um, you know, and people talk about they're not. Oh, there's not enough lithium, and you know, they, they, all this stuff is just. It's well, we don't have we don't have enough lithium mining companies at the moment. Yeah. Because we don't really use much lithium. Yeah. But before now, and now we all of a sudden need to use a lot. Mm. But it's not like there's a shortage of lithium. Um, what was the? Was it cobalt? The one that's like it's literally just in the Congo. Yeah, a large per- percentage of the the cobalt. Yeah. The world is in the Congo. But the yeah. other thing is that the modern batteries don't even use cobalt. Yeah, there's yeah. no rule that says you have to use a rare thing. And and mm. ideally, you're going to use things that are abundant so you don't have price spikes in the rare thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's interrupting the, the costs and everything. Yeah. And there's, there's a whole lot of new technologies and they're rapidly progressing. Like, say, for instance, the um, lithium-ion battery, um, they were putting more and more nickel into it to, yeah. to get higher energy density. Yeah. And it was getting expensive, and the Chinese um, uh, Chinese battery companies basically went, "Oh well, this is kind of getting a bit unsustainable." So they 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 started using lithium iron, as in not iron, but yeah. iron phosphate batteries. Yep. Um, and the idea being, well, you know, we're making this for Chinese cars, so they don't have to have a long range. They don't. We don't need the same energy density, but the same because the energy density is increasing every year. Mm. It turns out that these are actually the ones that are being put into Model Threes now. Yeah, so, right. So it's it's um, there's and there's other technologies coming along. Um, BYD, um, which is a 
large Chinese electric vehicle manufacturer. I didn't realise uh, that stands for Build Your Dreams. Yeah, yeah. I saw, <laughs> I saw, I saw one in the city yeah, and yeah. it said, Build Your Dreams, what the hell? Oh, that's BYD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just saw um, one in, uh, today, actually, yeah. at Casey um, Shops. Is that the one, Charlie yeah. Munger? Uh, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, BYD yeah, was yeah. the initial investment of Bogby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but apparently, uh, from 2025, they're looking at putting sodium ion batteries as a portion of their... Yeah, um, right. Um, so, so sodium, I mean, sodium... Like, literally, like, salt. Like. Yeah. So, so it's it's kind of like, there's no shortage of that. And they're going to, you know, put in, it'll be like a third of the batteries or something like that. The yeah. rest of them will be lithium iron. Um, but um, the, the, the thing is that because they, they seem to be able to repeatedly increase the energy density yeah. and reduce the price um, that you might end up with, you know, larger and larger portions of sodium ion batteries and to, to the point where you don't really need that much lithium at all. You know what I mean? There's yeah. all these things that are in the works um, and that continuing energy density, which is basically we need less and less lithium each year. Yeah, yeah. It's like, and lithium is not even – there's not even a shortage. There's just not enough – Miners like it's not like there's been a whole lot of lithium miners out there historically. Mm. And the idea is when the demand's high and prices are high, that that brings new businesses into the market to satisfy that demand and make money. That's capitalism. That's mm. like you know the whole premise. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic as well. Like um, if you think about what the world was like before the nuclear weapon bomb came, like ten years before the nuclear bomb, someone's like, "We're going to invent this technology that does that." You'd be like, "No way." Yeah. Um, and then, you know, putting a man on the moon. It's like, you know, they, these things. Did we? <laughs> <laughs> Did we? Yeah, I like that. Um, they are but, impossible I mean, they, until they're done sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, you know, they, they, we, humans are – people are pretty good. Well, I'm not, but smart people are pretty good at doing amazing things, right? So I, I have confidence that we have enough smart people out there. Um, they're called engineers, I think, um, <laughs> who, who can do these things. And, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, I think that there is, um, you know, there's enough examples of things just changing very quickly, especially when it comes to technology. And everyone can think of, you know, when mobile phones didn't exist to when, you know, they were, you know, they were for the, you know, that really wealthy businessman Mm. to have a car phone or something like that. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, people, people ask you for your mobile phone number and you go, I don't have one. And then... (laughs) And they look at you as if you're some sort of weirdo. Yeah. So what you're saying is Peter Zion still a dickhead. (laughs) (laughs) We need that clickbait. No, I'm I'm not mad at Peter Zion. I just he he speaks with such confidence. That's that's I don't know. Like so many. Like the one thing I've noticed from from the audio book is there's just so many ideas in there. Um, like I'd like, I'd I'd shudder to think the actual data that's behind each idea and, and the reading and things like that because he mm. sort of says a lot of says a lot of stuff but there's like not a lot of – I guess you can't go through a whole book like that giving figures out each time. He's very na- narrative-driven, isn't he? Yeah. He's like, he, he's, he has a few data points. And yeah, then, yeah. And he, he they story. gave some PDFs. I was supposed to bring them up yeah. today but I, I forgot to do so. Um, I, I do think he's got valid – Points of view. Yeah. I'm not trying to sort of diss him completely. Yeah, but, but I just on particular things, uh, I kind of think, oh well, hang on, you're either overplaying that, yeah, or it's um, or, or you've kind of left something out of the picture. Yeah, yeah. All, all in all, I, I'm a fan, and and 
don't mind his framework. It's just the the, the confidence which he, with which he says the things just um, makes me highly yeah. cynical. So I was a bit bummed out. I've, I've been a bit bummed out over the past couple of days listening to everything. Oh. But the, just because Peter Sion says it doesn't make it true. Yeah, for sure. The, for sure. For yeah. sure. Uh, you know, globally, I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of people who like to throw in conspiracy theories and yeah, yeah. create that pessimistic uh, viewpoint as yep. well. But if you see, you know, look back 50, 100 years back, when was the last time when the world was not at turmoil? Mm. You know, there was some <laughs> sort of geopolitical war which was always going on. Mm. Uh, we always felt that there's going to be, it's going to be a good trigger for a nuclear war or something. Yeah, yeah. And then we, then it just, you know, dissolves oh, I think I think the big thing that I take from Zaihan and, and I'm guessing you know he's not alone in this is is the idea that America will withdraw from global hegemony um, and will get sick of being the policeman of the world yep and and that will lead that was to another war. thing shipping routes so they're gonna stop policing the shipping routes yeah so I th- that idea that there's going to be more global conflict and yeah like mm. supply chain interruptions and all that yeah. sort of stuff um you could see the trend, um, you know, with Trump and, and the Democrats have, have, you know, continued that um, trend as well of, you know, bringing stuff back to America. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think like, you know, this idea as well that the US um, has, has been um, taking advantage of the rest of the world by printing US dollars mm. or whatever. There's, there's a counter argument to that saying US has been subsidizing the rest of the world by being a, a net importer. Yeah, and an ex- exporter of US dollars, um, they've they've killed their own industries doing that to to create um, trade around the world mm. because of this. Um, what what does Zion call it? Um, bullets for butter or guns for butter diplomacy? But mm. the idea is basically like you know, and this this is a thing. Okay, World War Two happens, Europe's devastated. Like America is easily the richest country on the planet. Yeah. Um, if they wanted to be you know douchebags, I think they could have kept their foot on the neck of the world. You know, and and just stayed super rich, but they, you know, it's it's, yeah. it's good to criticize America, and you know, I, I you know, I did uni, and you know, every every uni student starts off um, with a bit of socialist and Noam Chomsky leanings, and until they, you know, um, I guess get different <laughs> viewpoints. But um, you know, I was a good Chomsky reader and everything, and um, you know, America's bad guy and all that sort of stuff. But um. The, uh, under American um, governance, you know, America hegemony, the world has seen massive wealth increase. And Amer- I really think America could have just kept their foot on the neck of everyone, and they didn't. Um, but I think there has been a cost to America. Like, America was probably 50% of GDP post-World War II, mm. and now they're heaps less. Yeah. And, and they have um, social unrest and political problems in- internally because of, um, you know, their middle class shrinking, um, the, you know, the Rust Belt and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I, if I'm America, I'm just like, I'm sick of spending all my money on all this, you know, military and, you know, supporting NATO and everything. We'll just bring all the jobs back home. We're the ones with the best ideas. People steal our ideas. We've got every natural resource basically on the planet. Mm. You know, let's just look after number one. So. Yeah. And, and, I mean, I wonder whether um, there's sort of a, a cost-benefit. And, I mean, well, obviously there is some sort of con- cost-benefit analysis going, okay, well, you know, trade with the world, having a bigger military, you know, um, how about, you know, maybe a smaller, more concentrated military bring the high, high-end manufacturing back. Um, we're less reliant on the rest of the world. We don't need, you know, as big a navy and, and that kind of thing. I don't think America's uh, ever been reliant on the rest of the world, though. 
Like, that's the thing. Like, where do they rely on the rest of the world for anything? Oh, I don't know if that's... That. For exporting, I guess. But they, they, they do. They have a constant current account deficit, which we're not disputing. Um, and you're, you're saying that, oh, well, America could have just made everything themselves if they didn't pursue this policy. Mm. Um, but... If you, if you, you know, it, obviously, if you shut down world trade at the moment, that there'd be big problems, and I'm not just saying there would be big problems for for the United States. Yeah. So big, in 15 years, when all the um, manufacturing that they care about is is on the North American continent, because Mexico's got it, or the USA has it, yeah. they could probably just become a hermit. You know. Um, sure, but they would be paying higher prices than 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 uh, you know using. Um, cheaper, for instance, in a, you know, say 20, 10, 20 years ago, using cheaper Chinese. Yeah, or automation or, though. So you've yeah. got a yes, robot yes. factory versus um, a whole bunch of kids sewing the wallets. Yeah. The robot pack- factory is probably cheaper than the kids. Sure, sure. And, that, and that's, uh, you know, obviously they developed down that route. And that that's a sort of a good example, say, with <clears throat> manufacturing for, for, say, company like Tesla, where the number of people that they use to manufacture a car is very low compared to even traditional auto manufacturers. I forgot that the, uh, in, in the in the audio book he was talking about countries that have a good, uh, I forgot the name of the metric, but like a spread of pay mm. for people so that stuff isn't too expensive to make. So like there's the people that make a lot of money at the top of the society, but there's also the people that you can still pay peanuts. And, and uh, so that's why- uh, that's what will stitch up America initially with manufacturing. Everything will like go up in price because yep. you know you got to pay someone instead of paying them two bucks a day or whatever. You got to pay them, you know, yeah. thirty yeah. bucks an hour to to snap an iPhone together or whatever. But that's not like so. The idea of um, fiscal policy, like rather than giving all the money to the banks and it trickles yeah. down, giving it to the masses. Yep. Um, which was, you know, apparently what's caused this inflation. If it is inflation, I'm I'm leaning more towards it being inflation, but um. <laughs> You know, if if workers are getting thirty dollars an hour, that's kind of like fiscal, right? Um, you know, low, like you know, even if they're less skilled, and other workers are getting a hundred dollars an hour, like it's kind of putting money in the hands of masses, and that that should be good for for the economy. Um, two things I was going to say. Um, one, I had this idea that with interest rates rising, right? So the central banks put interest rates up, mm-hmm. um, stresses the economy. Right, businesses start to feel the pinch. Central bank says, "All right, um, we will lend to you at zero interest for anything that lowers your carbon output. We want you to go net zero ASAP. And if you want to borrow at zero interest, any money you borrow that goes towards net zero, um, then and and you have to use American made whenever it's available, basically." So then America just smashes out their yeah. net zero stuff before everyone and um, develops all the industries around that and uses printed money um, that the rest of the world still buys. So they do it on the cheap. Um, and apparently the central bank started putting some ESG crap in their mandate a year or two ago, didn't they? Oh, um, there's been discussions about, uh, yeah, the like, you know, the limited goals of the central bank and stuff. I don't, I don't know the details. Yeah, so that's an outlier that I thought of. That, um, yeah, once once the pain's there, the central bank start offering money for um, 
American-made zero carbon initiatives. But, but it's more likely that the the central government or the you know the federal government would um, run schemes and run deficits and have the central bank buy the money. Well, yeah, whatever, like so, something yeah, like yeah, that, where yeah, they work yeah. together yeah, when yeah. business is feeling the pinch and say, "Here's money," but it's got to be for for net zero mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, the other thing I was going to say is Peter Zaihan married. Is he? Is he? I think so. Yeah, oh. married's got kids and stuff. Oh, I, think. I was going to say because you could marry him, you love him so much, Andre. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you. Press the drum roll. You always talk. Press the drum roll. Maybe you're the gay one. <laughs> Like that, uh, the, that pasta. That Why are like, you pressing the drum roll? Pray, pray the gay way. <laughs> but uh, instead, sucking dudes off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Savage. Uh, Andre's a heavy hitter. <laughs> uh, so, how you going over there, Parwan? Yeah, good. I've been quiet for a bit. So far, so good. No, no, I'm just listening and trying to understand macro. I don't really understand macro because I don't, I don't think know much of, but then it's it's fun to hear thoughts yeah. as well. Oh. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of like voodoo magic or, or something yeah. like pre-scientific um, method discovery. It's just yeah. you know whatever whatever witch doctors used to do. That's that's what macro is to me. I don't get it at all. Yeah, yeah. I think voodoo. it's the kind of thing where where you kind of you latch onto some sort of narrative, and uh, but you miss you know a whole lot of other stuff that's happening. <laughs> it's my experience. Yeah, I think so, it doesn't also lead to uh, very actionable information as well. So I think it just kind of, uh, if it has done anything in past for me, it has confused me a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah. well, actionable, I've stayed away from China based on my macro thesis. I've not touched China, basically. And um, I had... Copper. No, but China itself. Yeah, yeah. Like the Chinese stock market, Shanghai, yeah. Yeah. whatever it is. Um, I've, I've not touched that um, because of my macro thesis. Um, a little bit of Macau Casino stuff. Mm. Um, but then got out of that because of my macro thesis as well, um, and probably just because I saw something else bright and shiny. But, but that's like I, I, I use macro to say don't invest in certain places. But, but also say say with with copper, that's a macro theme, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a. But yeah, 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 yeah. I guess yeah, it is. Um, but I mean, like I, I, I guess I was looking at a macro type thing, but also like looking at value in that space. Um, yep, yeah, okay. so I think there is actionability. India. Um, I, I, I had this vibe about India um, and, yeah, you know, bought into this Fairfax India but then saw it something bright and shiny again. But, yeah, that's um, <laughs> like that, that macro thing about the rise of India, um, you know, had my attention, you know, five, six, seven years ago whenever it yeah. was. But would you play the China story through uh, American equities like a Berg B or something or any fund which has a good exposure to Chinese market? Let's well, say, I'm anti. I, I don't want to touch Chinese anything with exposure to China. I I'm not interested in. So, not even the funds. Yeah, if there's like an American fund yeah. with investments in China, yeah. for me, it's like stay away from China. Yeah. Like that's um, like the floor is lava. Hmm. China's lava. What, what about say a uh, a wine producer uh, that exports um, wine? You'd think that that I mean, it's hard to see how. Um, you know, and, and China, as I understand, it's been a growing wine market. Um, there's not really any reason to think that the, you know, wine sales would be affected by lockdowns in a negative way, is there? Well, look, okay, so America, China stops being the factory of the world, right? Vietnam gets the stuff, Mexico gets the yeah. stuff, anywhere there's not China, really. Yeah. China gets gutted yeah. as far as this goes. Where are all the consumers buying it now? 
Where's the middle class? Well, but is that the because normally what happens is you start at the bottom of manufacturing, the the most basic stuff, and then you move up the chain. And as your wages go up, you've kind of forced up that that chain. So you would think, like, say for instance, uh, going back to electric car manufacturing, the Chinese seem to be. Apart from Tesla, they seem to be ahead of the European and American car manufacturers on on the technology in that in that space. Is oh. is China married, James? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was I, waiting for this one actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I I, I think um, they're going to be. He's got a red undershirt on. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're going to be more and more isolated, and um, yeah, I think there's there's many better places to go. I think there's more risks. Um, than then rewards with the whole China thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, even even for the winemakers, it's like, all right, of all the investments in the world, yeah. I can do a, a winemaker in, in, you know, that might sell to China yeah. or, you know, why can't I find something like Toyota? Yeah. <laughs> Indians buy Toyota. So, you know, like... Um, and Indians drive, do buy the, the wine as well. What's that? So, Indians do buy the wine as well. So, Australia, mm-hmm. which uh, which uh, the mm-hmm. entire wine industry was suffocated because of the uh, lack of demand, mm-hmm. high taxes, which were imposed on Aussie wine industry, uh, Australia was very quick to find an alternative partner where there's a huge demand for Aussie wines. So, uh, they partnered with India. So, their entire supply has gone to India now. There you did, go. Did that happen yeah. with resources like a big shipment of coal? When coal happened, iron ore happened again. You know, yeah. being an emerging economy, mm. a lot of infra development happening in India as well. So Australian uh, iron ore has found a new home, which is yeah. India. So the industries have not been impacted. Obviously, there's a free trade policy which has been yeah. signed up for 200 products between the country, which was in the pipeline yeah, for 10 yeah. years. <laughs> but finally happened. Uh, but you know, I, I uh, agree with Jay. Uh, uh, with Andy, with one more point that uh, yes, China plus one theme is uh, is something which has uh, been on the cards for a long time. So I think uh, whole of Europe and America has been uh, looking for alternative partners for manufacturing. And uh, yes, yes, the biggest beneficiaries have been Indonesia, Vietnam, India, and and uh, many other small countries as mm. well. So that theme is rocking very hard. Uh, and I purely say that with the context of Indian companies that there is such an incredible growth which is happening in chemical industries and a lot of manufacturing uh, only because of that China plus one thing. Yeah. I, I um, read a thing on Twitter, so it has to be true. Um, when when the Nord Stream blew up, yep. um, this blew guy- up or was- Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> well, yeah. When the Nord Stream thing happened, this guy was like every single country with a decent intelligence service yep. knows exactly what yeah, happened. Yeah. Um, and the person's like, everyone's hacking everyone, Every everyone's spying on everyone, everyone knows any stuff that was done through secret channels because it's not secret anyway. There's no secrets between these nations. Their spy networks are good enough. When it's hacked, everyone knows what's going on. Um, let's, let's just hypothesize that the COVID thing, it originated in China probably, right? Like that seems to be the case. Let's hypothesize that Western nations, or not even Western nations, nations with good spy apparatus had internal chatter from China and they heard stuff from China saying, this is really bad, but we shouldn't lock down now. We should allow a bunch of sick people to go overseas and infect other countries so they cop it as bad as we do, right? Because a lot of sick Chinese did go and and, and spread it apparently. Let's say that that was um, done 
deliberately. And there were discussions inside of China saying we could lock down now, but then we're screwed. Let's screw everyone. If that happened, I'm not saying it happened, but you, you can see China doing extreme lockdown measures whilst also people from China going overseas and spreading it. So if, if China is responsible um, through omission or commission that allowed COVID to spread to the rest of the world, and if governments are aware of this and haven't told us, do you reckon they're all like, oh, yeah, like, let's let's trade with China? Or do you reckon, like, they're all potentially, with my hypothetical scenario, saying, no, nah, China's done. You know, th- this is what they did to us. No, nah, that's we, we, we are getting away from China as quickly and as reasonable as we can, but they're done. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think that saying never attribute to malice what can otherwise be attributed to incompetence is, is probably more relevant in that that kind of situation. I mean, I, I think that... No, 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 yeah. James, because um, China, with their central planning, are such geniuses and their economic management is so superior to free markets and their central planning solves all these problems, right? That's that's what, um, you know, news, news, financial news media has been, you know, talking yeah. about for, 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 you know, a decade or more. Yeah. So, you know, if the financial news media is right... <laughs> Then, but, then they can't have any incompetence. They're but, um, but they're, they're mean, highly organised and switched on and don't make mistakes. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and, and obviously you've said that with tongue in cheek. I'm and, being uh, is that the word facetious? Am I being yeah, facetious? Yeah, that's probably. But but it does look like the say their current lockdown has, um, has come out of, you know, is developed into sort of kind of incompetence about or shown their incompetence about. Managing the crisis because I mean they they could have quite easily stuck their hands in the air and gone ah oh, look our vaccines don't work let's import all this Pfizer and you know AstraZeneca or whatever and uh, and uh, then we'll let the thing rip and but know, it's yeah. like um the, the lockdowns apparently aren't about COVID they're about demonstrating power mm. yeah they're I, about they're about um I think it's about slowing. Not- they're they're about having an excuse for their poor economy. Yeah, yeah, but I think that's um, it. their it's economy. Like- their economy's got problems. Yep. and they can't say to the population, "Look, people don't want to trade with us very much anymore," and we're kind of on the nose globally. Um, and all these promises that legitimised our um, authority over you, um, we can't meet them. So it's like, oh well, of course we're not selling stuff. We've got COVID lockdowns. Yeah, I mean, I- there's, there's different theories, but yeah. um. Yeah, uh, and then China apparently, um, I don't know if this is true at all, but talked with Putin and said invade Ukraine after the Olympics. Oh, yeah, yeah, I heard that one. Right? Um, let's say that happened, right? And let's say all again, all these spy networks know yeah. about all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, China colluding with Russia on the Ukraine invasion. Yeah. Um, China seeming to be hostile towards Taiwan. Mm. Look, China's on the nose, man. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I don't. And I don't, yeah, I, do I just don't see China being on the nose. I don't see that changing. I don't see like globally, like people going, oh, yeah, cool, but you make stuff slightly cheaper than Vietnam, all's forgiven. Um, yeah. And, and, and also, just right, if they're a threat to America, of course America's going to knock them down a few pegs. You're insane not to. Yeah. I, 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 I think that though that they, they've really made a lot of mistakes, the Chinese, in terms of the. The management of of post COVID and and it, it, there's been a number of COVID and post COVID has really kind of shown the regime to be um, 
you know, they, they, they make decisions and then they don't seem to be able to dig their way out of the decision they've made. They're well, flexible. Well, 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 regime being good, bad, whatever. Let's say they're let's say they're actually a really good um, administrative government. Um, like you know, like the Singapore that was a, a, a good dictatorship of sorts. I think. Um, let's say China are actually doing a wonderful job, right? Um, for their population and everything. Let's just go with that. They're still on the nose globally. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I agree. And 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 that's um that macro vibe I have means I'm not touching China, even if they okay. want to buy wine. Yeah. Um, A2 Milk, right? Remember remember yeah. A2 Milk being like a, um, a stock market darling because there was in, um, poisonous or infected baby formula being sold inside of China. So then Chinese people didn't want to buy Chinese-made baby formula and they bought, you know, trustworthy yeah. in, in their view, like, you know, baby formulas from Australia and that sort of stuff. Um Oh, I saw that, and I'm like, ah, you know, like maybe that continues for A2 milk, or yep. and then you saw, um, I think Warren Bull cheese or something, various yep. dairy, you know, things spruiking. Oh, we're going to get a relationship yep. with China. Barely happened. Um, some company was involved in cleaning up the toxic lakes and rivers with their technology in China, and you know, it was going to be this wonderful thing. Um, you know, small cap or whatever. Um, and they did a whole bunch of um, you know, deals in China, and, and I think that company's probably bust now. Um, it's like, yeah, cool. You're doing all these deals with China. How do you know they're not just going to steal the technology and do it themselves? Um, yeah, and intellectual property theft apparently from China. I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing it. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, it's I, a little bit different though to exporting a bottle of wine. Like you, no, all I'm saying is yeah. that I don't see Chinese guys buying my wine. Like, you know, you're like, well, what about wine at least? Um, yeah. It's like, I just, I just don't see them being a market for stuff in the future, really. Like, I, um, I, I'm, the op- I'm very bearish on China okay. and, and have, um, ha- have felt like they were over-talked up and potentially overpriced because of that. Um, and the price didn't factor in all the risks yep. around China. And, and their market was flat for, what, like 15 oh, yeah. years or whatever. And, like, you know, the property bubble yep. and all that sort of stuff um, – so yeah, it's like what was that um the twenty the you know the IBMs and all that sort of stuff in the seventies that uh, like, n- there was a nifty fifty in the United States in the in the nineteen what was it nineteen fifty sixty something so really good businesses that were going to take over yep. the world yep. um tech businesses mm-hmm. all performed really well as businesses mm-hmm. but the stock price yep. didn't go up very much because they were just massively overpriced to begin with. Yep. Um, yeah, I've had that um, sense around um, the, the Chinese stock market. It's like there's a lot of, um, you know, awesome outcomes kind of already priced in mm. for China. It's like not much downside in my mind was priced in with these um, Chinese indexes. And I, I stayed well and truly away and, and I'll continue to stay away from that. And I think, I think that people did get very excited about, about China and um, it's obviously not now – seen as like the you know the place to invest it's a you know seen as a as a risky place to invest again rather than like the growth mm. place to invest apparently apple um is oh, yeah. or was it is it tsm c or whatever um they they they're trying to remove their plants from china i don't know like you know the thing about like those guys like going like revolting in in that Manufacturing plant because of COVID lockdowns. What's that place? That's Foxconn. Yeah. That's they're, Foxconn. they're the people that yeah. build the iPhones. Yeah. Right. Or maybe maybe it's, yeah. I don't know. But there's like stuff related to Apple 
yep. products yeah, I think that's it. and yeah. supply chains. Apparently, Apple's starting to withdraw from China as well. So. Yeah, that's the building they had to install like maybe five or ten years ago. Their stories coming out, they had to install suicide nets. Yeah, on because it was such a shit place to work, they would would uh, jump off the building so they put nets. Yeah, I heard that. Um, and also yeah, in the screen polishing department, they too cheap to use, uh, like whatever you use normally for things. So they were just using benzene because it was cheap. Oh, so it was just like an accepted thing. If you work there, you will get leukemia. And yeah, sounds awful. Yeah, but people would do it because you know they've come out of the country making like no money, and they'll just do it for as long as they can, and then. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Apple, Apple supply chain stuff apparently is leaving China as well. And I'm, I'm guessing under Trump, um, you know, he he kind of said basically everyone needs to get their stuff out of China. Yep. And and I think you know we we can you know he can be ridiculed and all this sort of stuff. Um, I I suspect some businesses listen to that. And and you've got a President Trump, you've got a President Biden, right? They come and go. The bureaucracies around these presidents don't come and go. And they're the ones probably talking to industry. So there, there could have been a conversation for the last 15 years between various American bureaucratic things telling industry, look, um, the landscape's changing with China. Yeah, and, and it looks it do, does look like there is deglobalization. It does look like that governments are much more concerned because there was this kind of view, like we've seen with Germany and and Russia, that you know nations that trade together won't fight. Um, but that's uh, looking less likely to be the the case. Uh, it looks more like like say in the German example that the Germans have um, you know thought that if they have a really good trade relationship with Russia, then um, then you know they're not they're not going to end up in any sort of you know military type conflict, um, but clearly that's not the case. It just made the Germans more vulnerable in a, mm. in a military conflict, and I think obviously the United States probably has taken on that view as well, and will take more you know uh, manufacturing, for instance, onshore, mm. um, and put the policies in place to do that. So I think I think that's um, you know something that that is changing and it seems like governments are more prepared to so i mean this this goes kind of goes into that inflationary theme that you know governments are more prepared to pay the price or have higher you know higher inflation rates and mm. um in order to um be more independent from other countries especially when those other countries are say communist countries yeah. or you know having a a sort of some sort of dictator type position like in, yeah in in Russia, um, so yeah, I think that that is definitely a sort of a global change that's going yeah. to be. So where does it, where do you think India sits in all of this? I think uh, you know it depends a lot on the policies. I think India yeah. would be a biggest beneficiary yeah. of this entire uh, uh, you know global conspiracy or narrative yeah. that is currently playing out. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the whole China plus one theme is all about moving industries away from China and yeah. over dependence of the global economy on China yeah. when it comes to manufacturing and, yeah. and just, you know, breaking the back of that uh, hegemony yes. that China has enjoyed uh, and their actions have really not, you know, supported uh, uh, that narrative, the global narrative. So I think India is definitely poised. You know, one such thing that you were talking about mm. and I just took a very curious note of it was benzene, yes. right? Uh so Deepak Nitride, the company that I was earlier yeah. mentioning, for them, one of the raw products 
is benzene yes to be able to derive nitride yeah yeah right so uh and and indian chemical companies uh have a huge reliance for raw material in china till date and same is for the pharma industry i was actually going to ask mm-hmm. ask the uh I was going to slip in a question there. What's what's the relationship between the two? If if yeah. you knew, so 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 I think when it comes to uh, uh, the challenges which are ahead of these mid cap or large cap companies for in in India who are suspecting this wonderful growth uh, ahead, uh, is to back integrate themselves backwards as well in yeah. terms of uh, 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 decreasing their reliance on China for this yes. uh, uh, raw material. So yeah, the, say. vertical integration type. Yeah, yeah, Correct. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, uh, when it comes to logistic, India already is ramping up the logistics uh, yeah. in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the seed out or uh, uh, ramping up the infrastructure, developing highways and everything. But I think when it comes to uh, backward integration of chemical raw material, mm. India still has a heavy reliance on them. Yeah, I think okay. there is a, there is a, there is a huge uh, performance link incentives which are being uh, given by Indian government right now. Yeah. That's one of the welcome changes in the policies, yeah. which is happening as well. So uh, for for doing that backward integration, yeah, as well. But that that will take a lot of time. So yeah. there is a huge capital expenditure which is being done by every chemical company, mm. but mm. still a huge reliance. So if China ramps up the benzene prices, which is exactly what happened in the last couple of quarters post-COVID, and it reflected on the profit margins mm. uh, of the companies, uh, all, all Indian companies, actually. So I think, uh, so it's very interesting, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, it, the faster the the backward integration can be done, yeah. uh, not only just for chemical industry, but for every other industry, another big industry in India, which is pharmaceutical, has a huge reliance on active pharmaceutical mm. ingredients, the APIs on mm. China as well. So I think the, and the so current do, farm industries are battling that as well. So do you know, is it like China just has the, they've got like the mint, like I don't know where pharmaceutical stuff comes from. It's yeah, the farms. <laughs> <laughs> um, but do you have to like dig it out of the ground or what? Like, you know, like for say benzene, what where does benzene come from? So chemical it, industry basically. Uh, uh, is it like, is it like a, uh, like chemistry set sort of stuff? You take like. I don't know. But it'd be a chemical compound. It's not like a like an element. Oh, so it's not like a, like a mine. A question of mining. Like we, if we wanted to, we could start a benzene factory in Canberra. Yeah, I would imagine so. And, and the idea is that a lot of these things actually went to China because it's like we don't want this crap in our backyard. Yes. Like, um, essentially, the West exported their pollution to China. Is, yeah. is one argument that's been made. Yeah. And and the low cost as well of manufacturing as well. Yeah. So. Uh, so, you know, the good way to understand this and, and the way I have started to understand this is the molecule discovery for a pharm- pharmaceutical industry will happen somewhere in the West or Europe, yeah. right? And then they will export the contract manufacturing of the medicine to mm. India. Obviously, very heavily regulated. Every industry which is bidding for it uh, will have to go through a very stringent test to get an approval from USFDA. Yeah. And then... Uh, they will source the uh, uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients, which is the raw material for making this medicine yep. uh, uh, from China. Yeah. So that's how the global supply chain for pharmaceutical industry works, yeah. right? And and for India to emerge as a dominating player, an end-to-end service provider for the West, mm. then they need to uh, uh, do backward integration mm. to be the uh, manufacturer of active pharmaceutical industries yeah, yeah. as well. And so you, I think Andy is right. Sorry, just one more yeah, point yeah, that yeah. Andy is right that there is there is a, a, a 
a uh, lot of threats around that if i if you remember couple of years back we had the uh, explosion in beirut mm. which was very widely oh, yes. covered in uh, social media yeah. that was actually a uh, explosion in a nitrate plant mm. yeah and that's okay. the threat yeah so, yeah yeah so though there is an barrier to entry yeah which gives a huge moat to the company as well mm. uh, but then there are there is a threat related to it as well mm. just to internet um is benzene the same as gasoline gasoline also known as gas in the USA petrol in the commonwealth countries and benzene in germany yeah is primarily used as motor fuel in combustion engines in holland they so a hydrocarbon based solvent mixture yeah I, when i was in holland that's what they called petrol okay benzene. the netherlands um yes the netherlands um the the other thing with um that's interesting with just from a sort of a geopolitical thing with india at the moment is they've they have taken a very uh neutral position say in terms of the um stuff with you know russia and ukraine war where they're they're not sort of um they they're not on on they've taken a very neutral position they're not not India's not on one side. It's, you know, it's going to get on with trade. It's going to get on with trying to have good relations with Russia and try and have good relations with the United States and try and have good relationships with China, try and have good relationships with Europe. Uh, it's it's quite an interesting... And they seem to be able to be, to have pulled it off so far, which is quite um, interesting. And it does kind of put you in a... put Or put India in a, in a position where... Um, yeah, you are. You 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 can be a you know a reliable um, you know partner, even uh, even though you're not necessarily an ally, if that makes sense. I I um I, I question that um, with Saudi Arabia as well. Um, you could argue that Saudi Arabia's cozying up to to China is actually just becoming more neutral than you know rapidly cozy with US. Right, mm. um, it's not anti-US. It's just becoming neutral. Mm. Um, but there, there's, you know, talk with Saudi Arabia, and I don't see why it can't be applied to India. It's like, oh, this Saudi-China stuff. It's not mm. not legit at all. It's just it's just a bargaining chip to to have better negotiations with the West. But but do you think they're what? just they're just using that? Like, you know, this is what they do every now and then. They just kind of like say, oh, we'll be cozy with these guys. What can what can you give us to stay friendly? But, what assurances can you give us? But, but do you I don't think, know if it's true. Like you know, it could be a shift that Saudi's doing, or could, could be a bargaining thing. And maybe India as well. It's like you know, India is just you know saying, yeah, yeah, we're neutral, we're just playing it cool or whatever. But you know, they're actually saying to the USA, look, we just want a a, be, a better seat at the table. We want to be on your table. We just want our seat to be better. But, but and think, they're just showing, you know, look, we we could go this way. We don't want to, but you know, just just incentivize us a bit. Yeah, I think I think though with Saudi Arabia, they are realizing that that um, they're you know, in terms of oil imports, that like Saudi Arabia is all about oil, really, isn't it? Um, and um, in terms of oil exports from Saudi Arabia, they're going to China. They're not. They're, they're. You know, the U.S. imports of of oil have been decreasing. Well, uh, you know, since the shale revolution, and now it looks like with the electrification of everything that that that's not such a uh, lucrative market for for the Saudis. It looks like China is actually. I mean, that's that's what I would do. I'd go, well, where's a where are we going to be able to export this oil in the future? Apparently, India is an emerging economy. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe they, maybe they want oil. Well, I mean, it's yeah, closer, I mean, closer that, as well, that, isn't it, to Saudi does, Arabia? Does kind of make sense, though, doesn't it? Like you, you would, you would be pursuing China and and India, obviously, and and you know, 
uh, Southeast Asia, those kind of countries that are going to need, um, you know, need your oil. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff at all. It's just you know, obviously, just pulling stuff out of my ass ultimately. But um, yeah, I, I suspect that maybe India isn't as neutral as they come across. They're just using a bargaining chip. But but oh, they do seem to be very very much more like it's it's not really clear that they're um that India have taken a position um with either the West or with Yeah, we've got a um alliance with India militarily. I can't remember the name of it, but we've got we've got we've got a military alliance with them. Is that is what quad group is? Quad group, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So US, UK mm. no, US, Australia, Japan and mm. India. Mm. Yeah, but uh, anyways, a very interesting point because I think India's position with Russia is not just from a neutral standpoint of you to take advantage of the global scenario, but I think it's purely in the national interest yep. as much yep. as I've understood this because, see, India's uh, India's uh, reliance on Russia is primarily for oil, mm. right? And uh, India cannot really export uh, import oil mm. from any other country. Mm-hmm. Because of uh, uh, being a good ally with US, mm-hmm. uh, we cannot import oil from Iran. Mm-hmm. We cannot import oil from US because they cannot satisfy the demand. Mm-hmm. So that only leads uh, India to Russia. What about Saudi Arabia or do Abu Dhabi, Dubai? Uh, so India does uh, that as well, but that's uh, that's a I think a fair split between Saudi Arabia and uh, Russia because none of them can satisfy the demand alone. Right now, but if uh, Saudi Arabia stops selling to China and sold to India, demand satisfied, right? Oh, it could be yes, but then unfortunately, Saudi Arabia and US ties are also not looking very good at this moment. Uh, and I think they've always been in the national interest. I mean, uh, the the last time when Saudi Arabia and US ties were at turmoil was when uh, Kamal uh, uh, Jamal Khashoggi was mm. actually killed mm. in the embassy. And I think uh, if if those geopolitical ties could survive at that time and uh, they could still negotiate, well, more more weapons went to Saudi Arabia. More weapons after went that, to Saudi Arabia. Some and, weapon and the, deals after that. So I think uh, it's always been a reflection as far as it works in the national interest of a country. Uh, everything can be spared, yep. basically, and I think uh, that's what Indians' uh, narrative has been, and Indian foreign policy has been very strong under uh, S. J. Shankar. Uh, who's been questioned uh, very widely by uh, European media and American media that why do you continue to buy oil? Mm. So now I think his reply last time when I was watching his interview was very straightforward that, you know, uh, you look at the value of uh, oil that is uh, being bought by Indian companies, not Indian government, Mm. actually. uh, But you completely discount and overlook the gas which is bought by Europe. Yeah, <laughs> I like, I like and, Shankar's responses. Isn't it? And and and, and I think, uh, you know, he, he had put stats around it as well. The amount of oil that is bought in a month by India, uh, Europe buys uh, in in an afternoon mm. that amount of uh, gas. Yes, yeah. So that's the heavy line. So why are you not asking this question to Europe, but you are asking this question to India? Yeah. So I think uh, that kind of explains that, you know, it's it's used like a bargaining chip right now. Uh, but India's point of view, as far as I understand, is on the national interest. Mm-hmm. We need to feed 1.35 billion po- mm-hmm. population mm-hmm. Uh, and can't work without oil. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't see... I think India can be buying Russian oil because it's cheap. And they could also say like, it's not going to be a long-term thing. Um, 
it kind of annoys the West. We, we all use this as a negotiating thing. And while we're negotiating, we're still getting cheap oil. So we'll negotiate a better seat at the table. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll buy cheap oil in the meantime because it can't hurt. But, you know, another thing is that I, I wonder that if how West gets this confidence to moral police the world, mm. actually. You're going to agree. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I do agree. It's, um, it's, it's very arrogant. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, think, I, think um, I think we have the confidence because um, the West colonizes the rest of the world. The West brought um, a lot of um, technological and, and political advancements to the rest of the world. Um, I, I personally see Western culture, if I had to rank them as, as the most superior culture, um, so I think that's what leads to it. And I mean, look, the fact that I'm saying I see Western culture as the most superior culture, I think I'm uh, exemplifying where we get this attitude from. Because <laughs> ultimately, I, I have that attitude, I, I guess. I think in the last one decade, one of the things that we have started to notice is that India is, uh, India is denying to, uh, uh, to stay as a colony for either a West or a Russia. And I think uh, that's where the national interest is arising as well. So I think, uh, yeah, it's a good thing. I think I think um, for yeah for India for sure it is and again like um, we, we we forget that while like you know when when we were barbarians or like you know the dark ages like um, in Jantomitta or whatever they were already like you know calculating the correct distance from the Earth to the Sun and all this sort of stuff and like what was that like the 12th century in India they're calculating that sort of stuff absolutely you yeah. know before actually Galileo find out I was just reading this article this morning Jant- as well Jant- or whatever that Jantamantra yes yeah. so you know yeah. before Galileo uh, found out that it, the Earth is round uh, many many uh, years back uh, before that actually Indians called the Earth addresses as Bhu Gol Bhu means Earth Gol means round the Earth is round that has been the word to address Earth for the longest time. I got a friend the Yogi, ancient... and and he's um like Fijian but Indian, yeah. and he always says how Indians invented everything and did everything first. And like he just started reminding me of Yogi. <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's about how do you sell your culture? India has never been great at selling this culture, but I re- I reckon that this is going to change. I think West has been very good. They have enjoyed the hegemony of media for the longest time, but it's going to change. And the soft diplomacy of, um, you know, Hollywood and rock music and all that Correct. sort of stuff. Correct. So they promoted their culture very well. But I think the uh, this, this century, if not, you know, if this decade, actually, if not the century belongs to Asia, yeah. it will pretty much belong to either India or China. And that narrative will be uh, marketed very well. Oh, yeah, I don't so, know. So, be prepared and be ready to hear that a lot of things were invented in India. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if um, you know the next you know decade or, or, or you know fifty years belongs to anyone outside the West. Um, I, I don't know. I'm more America it belongs to America. I reckon um, the the next um, short future but, but, decade, you, the next fifty years. You you would like if you were thinking about um, you know the the say country that was going to become you know. Um, come from behind to be, you know, the world's largest economy. You, you'd probably go for India over China. Like, I, personally, I would. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, but, but I, I just don't see anyone doing it, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, obviously, India's emerging, and, and, and that's great for India. Um, and I think with that emergence and, and with money, um, you'll get um, Western kowtowing, you know, the same way yeah. the West kowtow to Japan, the same way the West, you know, kowtow to China. I don't know, we have a bit of money worship, so if India's showing money, there'll be a bit of worship <laughs> around that. So, um, yeah, but, but do you agree uh, that, you know, if, 
when India was colonized and uh, and and uh, Britishers left uh, India, the, they just stole the wealth and not the uh, not the research. It, it, it would seem that the the British stole wealth from everywhere. I mean, like I remember, um, like reading reading something um, when I was at uni. Um, when you look at all these um, beautiful buildings in in Europe, just remember that they came from the blood of people in Asia. Um, you know, like the Dutch East, Dutch East Indies. Um, you know, whatever the various um, trading companies that that exploited. You know, from what I understand, exploited resources from from Asia. Um, so yeah, it's um. Uh, and I like I had a rant about this on one of the podcasts. The um, arrogance of the West, um, acting like they did all this off their own bat when you know it was funded by um, Asia, effectively. Um, you know, Britain preaching to other countries about how to be responsible with X, Y, and Z, and it's like maybe all, all your success came from cheap Asian funds, like you know, free potentially in some cases. Yeah. Um, the exposure, like, I don't know how much wealth was in India, but like there was some analysis. Some dudes had like $50 trillion in today's money the Brits took out of India. So, so when they did, but like, by like taking of raw resources and stuff? Or? Gold. Yep. But not, so not just What's, gold, wait, I think. Wait, wait, wait. The Queen has some crown. Yeah, that has yeah. What's that, that crown, crown belongs to India. Well, what's what's it's that? Got jewelry? a Tantar badge on it. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, so, that's, that's gold. <laughs> no, it's like the ruby. It's an Indian ruby. Not right? the ruby, actually, the diamond. It was the biggest diamond uh, that was found in Indian mines in Golconda, and it's called Kohinoor, uh, and uh, that is the prized jewel on the uh, Queen's crown, actually. Whoa. So that crown but belongs it, to India. Actually, is, is, is it is it um, clear diamond or is it like pinkish or something? It's, it's a it's a D flawless diamond. So it's, it's it's clear. It's clear. Yeah, there you go. Okay, yeah, there's some red thing on her head. But so anyway, it's a super long game that now you got an Indian prime minister, maybe one day an Indian queen, and you'll get it back. Well, it was a speculation <laughs> that Modi Modi Deep would strike a deal here. with Rishi to give yeah. us the crown back. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that'll happen. Yeah. Well, look, if, if Russia can't go and take Ukrainian things yep. and England's saying, you know, you can't just go and take a country, you know, the Irish might be like, well, what about Northern Ireland? Mm. And the Indians are like, well, you know, you can't go around taking stuff. Give us a crown back. Yeah. I'm, and, I'm, and Vindaloo. You guys can't use that recipe anymore. I, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to sort of flick fl- in and, and say it. India's, oh, you're such a gora, James. Well, <laughs> India has successfully adopted a lot of, say, British institutions, and they probably um, make the country a more, you know, stable and democratic country than, you know, a country without sort of British tra- tradition of, you know, parliamentary democracy and and separation of powers and things like that. So while I'm not disagreeing that there's a two-way history in this. So yeah, for sure. And if, if if I'm a country and I'm told you can have material wealth or you can have advanced knowledge, if I reject advanced knowledge at some point because of the Red Queen hypothesis, you have to be running faster and faster just to keep up, eventually um, by rejecting advanced knowledge, you're, you go backwards. And, and, and the West had the scientific revolution they had the Industrial Revolution and all these countries that were colonised got access to that knowledge um, as a result uh, of these colonialist um, expansions. So um, they lost wealth but gained knowledge. Um, and, and, yeah, I think in the long term, knowledge 
creates wealth. So I mean, you need a blend, though. You can't have too much wealth taken. Yeah, yeah, no. But you also course, got to yeah. get the knowledge. No, no. But you could you could argue, say, for instance, that um, that Japan, a lot of Japan's uh, institutions are basically brought in by the Americans after the Second World War, and that's made Japan or made Japan a very wealthy country, or helped to make Japan a very wealthy country, having the the right institutions in place. Um, you know, having a democracy in place instead of a you know a uh, you know a monarchy. Um, you know. There are there are things that you can look to to, um, I guess like Western systems when they're um, being um, you know implemented and they've been implemented successfully in, in other. I'll give you give you another example when the can you remember in Hong Kong there were uh, riots was it a year ago a couple of years ago when was that the umbrella people uh, uh, umbrella protests. There were yeah. umbrella protests in Hong Kong. I don't so, know if that's so, what he's so, talking about. So I'm when it probably is when the when the um, protesters broke into the parliament because they were unhappy about the proposed um, changes from Beijing about you know dominating the parliament with you know communist sympathisers or whatever. Um, they tore down the um, the Hong Kong the the Chinese Hong Kong flag in the parliament. And they stuck up the the British colonial flag. Huh. So um, I think, and that that to me is just a recognition of that particular, um, you know, that that British colonial flag for them was representative of you know representative democracy and and balance mm. of powers and all that kind of thing. Better yeah. times. But yeah. So, and obviously we do, we do know about um, you know not trying to whitewash anything and 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 say that you know. It was, you know, all this stuff is really great, and there's nothing, you know, don't look away. There's, you know, nothing bad that's happened. But I, I think just in terms of the balance of the, of, um, you know, there's certainly some pretty bad things that's happened in terms of colonial oh, for systems. Sure. Yeah. Um, but there's also been some good things, and obviously we should acknowledge the bad things. And, and, you know, work on making the most out of the good things, I guess. The other thing is that, that diamond, which is called what? Kohinoor, yeah. What state's that in? Uh, that's in down south in Hyderabad. Mm-hmm. There is a mine called Golconda Mines, right. the so region of Golconda. I speculate the the current occupants of Hyderabad mm-hmm. weren't always the occupants of Hyderabad. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, the, 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 the people who were in power when that mm-hmm. mine existed... I speculate got that land at some point in history from somebody else. So, so Hyderabad is one of the states, contrary to what you're saying, is actually being held by a Nizam of Hyderabad who was a king. So before the unification of India, when the state of Hyderabad was included in the country of India, uh, it was always belonged to the same king, yeah. the Nizam of Hyderabad. And and the king right. of Hyderabad had um, a hierarchy that oppressed the masses, the peasants, and all that sort of stuff. And, See, and that can they, always be debated. They probably Tell me if sheriff, it doesn't happen till they, they probably had a sheriff that paid to be the sheriff. And, <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's always been the history. That can always be blamed to any race, any king, exactly. anywhere yeah. in the and world. That's the point. Right. It's yeah. like, you know, but that so, doesn't mean that you will show up at our sto- shores and you will colonize us. And, and yeah. contrary to what you're saying, James, yep. as well, uh, you know, if there is anything that colonization has given to India, then it has only given scars. Mm. Uh, and I don't agree with the fact that India was very prosper on the fact that it was it had all the mining and we were digging all the golds and the diamonds. Mm. It was a rich country. Mm. 
a much richer country than any country of the world at that time culturally rich culturally um, rich based on research and knowledge rich. so i don't think colonization imparted any wealth of knowledge to india if it did anything it took away everything from india from resources uh, uh human resource wealth and everything mm-hmm. so it deteriorated and it left india into the among one of the poorest countries in the world mm-hmm. and also another fact of this same uh, which supports the same fact is that if uk was so pride, proud of coloni- colonization mm-hmm. then why would they not teach such a great history in their mm-hmm. textbooks yes, yeah. um yeah yeah no i, I, you know, I which is not taught actually we we, we okay but um penicillin came from the west Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know when that came about. Do you know when penicillin was invented? Oh, I, I don't know. When, if if England never went to India and India was left alone, correct? When would they have developed penicillin? So India, even when uh, UK showed at the shores of India or the uh, uh, British Empire, uh, India was still one of the largest uh, popul- populated country in the world, which we are till date. So not that anybody, everybody would have died. No, 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 no. I'm just saying the actual technology. Yeah. Like, um, you know, the, the scientific revolution came from the West. Um, that, that sort of stuff allowed penicillin to exist. Would, if, not, if the West didn't um, bring that technology to India, penicillin, mm-hmm. would India have invented it? And if so, when? And, and if, if India would have invented it, but they would have invented it in 2050 – then it's like, well, there, there was an, a knowledge gain for India. And if you're like, well, they, India would have invented it and they would have invented it 20 years before the West, then it's like, well, there wasn't a knowledge gain for or India. Maybe just 20 in years after. Yeah. Or maybe just 20 years after. Who knows? Mm. Nobody can say that today, isn't it? Mm. Mm. So I'm just saying that, you know, that the knowledge and the research was always going there. That's why the civilization was prospering. Mm. So we cannot say that... Uh, it was only because of uh, you know the west mm-hmm. india learned about certain things i'm sure that it can be further debated yeah. but if you look at the scars what it did in terms of the damage mm. uh, uh, the colonization did uh, that has that has you know far more consequences which india is suffering till date mm. and still trying to overcome so well, a lot yeah. of countries which write of india and say that emerging economy india was a far more developed economy in their times mm. actually so it's still mm. trying to overcome yeah. mm. And and I mean, and maybe sort of uh, you know we've got a different view from in terms of the Australian perspective in terms of of you know Australia being a British colony. I, I think that most people uh, would agree that there in in Australia that there was a lot of bad things that happened, um, especially say to to the mistreatment uh, of Aboriginals. Yeah, that's a cl- classic classic example. Um, but in in sort of general terms, we have a democratic system. Um, you know, we have, you know, a, you know, all the governmental type, type things and the, mm. the peaceful nature of Australia really does largely come down to the, um, I guess, the, the institutions and um, the inclusiveness of, of uh, British, um, you know, uh, a society that's been sort of, mm. you know, given to us as a basis to uh, create a country um, and, you know, we, we, you can, there's lots and lots of bad things that you can think of in Australian history that, that are the result of, you know, colonisation. Um, but if you look at the, the 
to, to, to look at it only in that context, uh, for, for us anyway, um, is would be a, a total misreading of, of, of history. Um, you know, we, we've, we've now got a, a you know, a, a country that is very peaceful, it's very prosperous, um, that, um, you know, we, we, we're, you know, got one of the best living standards in the world um, and very so- socially cohesive, even though we've got a very diverse population. Um, you know, it, it, it's the 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 story sort of for colonisation for Australia is is generally speaking a, a positive one. Obviously, we we're glad that the British no longer control Australia. Well, they do. Uh, the Governor General can sack the Prime Minister. Yeah, but but, <laughs> but who appoints the Governor General? You know, um, so it's it's kind of um, you know. It, oh, I guess from the Australian perspective, it's a much more mixed, um, uh, you know, view, view of the view of you know British influence. And I'm um, not Aboriginal, so my view is he's more positive um, than you know. But, but, it might but be. you're also not from any sort of British background. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I yeah, like I, I say to my wife, who's you know Anglo background, I, I like you know making this joke. I don't know if it's true, but the greatest contribution the British ever made to the world was encouraging people to line up in an orderly fashion. <laughs> and, you know, but, but in a sense, it's, it is kind of putting the 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 basis in in order for people to to trade, to you know elect governments, to be able to you know have have freedoms and, and, and well, well look, I, I think you look at any 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 knowledge based thing, whether it's a political system, scientific system, whatever, anything that's knowledge based, yep. anything yep. that's immaterial, yep. knowledge based, right? Um, the proof's in the pudding, and. Um, you'll, you'll see places all over the world adopting knowledge um, from various places, um, which means they value it. And, and a lot of the knowledge that's adopted um, and proves it's valued um, comes from the West. So it's, it's valued to some extent. Um, and, and sure, there's other things that have come from the West that aren't valued. Um, but yeah. Um, uh, another thing is, interestingly, the... Commonwealth countries that are the most successful in terms of per capita income um, are all ones where the local population um, was dwarfed, I guess, by the um, imported population. So Canada, New Zealand, um, Australia, whatever, like Nigeria, um, any, anyone where the local population has a large number effectively and the, the um, whites couldn't dominate in large numbers. Um seems to be the most successful um, per capita. I don't know if that's because of the systems or if there's some sort of little club where they trade with each other more, um, but it's an interesting observation anyway. But over time, over time, Carol Quigley, um, who wrote a book called The Anglo-American Establishment about Cecil Rhodes, um, trying to promote British culture around the world and um, a, a, a secret club that's not so secret um, in the UK that had members influencing all of society to, to export um, British British values um, effectively. He also wrote a book, um, I think, called The Clash of Civilizations or something, Evolution of Civilizations. And he argues that um, civilizations, there's only been like seven in history or something, um, and they occur in isolation. But every now and then you get two civilizations meeting mm-hmm. and where they meet forms a new civilization. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how, you know, I guess that's maybe that's the evolutionary side of that 
So um, I, I think in that theme, you could see the colonialization meeting other civilizations and from that new and what I guess gets recognized by success, greater civilizations emerging, um, evolving. So it, it could be the case that um, Western civilization meets China, Western civilization meets India, Western civilization meets some other part of the world. Um, China's got a strong culture and civilization or culture of its own civilization. I don't know um, how, how quickly rates at India too. Maybe from that emerges something stronger than India was on its own and the West was on its own or China was on its oh, own but, and but, the West was on its but own. But that does seem to be, to say, from at least from a, like a Western perspective, like, uh, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, most, you know, say, um, whether it's, you know, Canada or Australia, you know, even Britain, you know, the, the populations there are, you know, very diverse um, and, you know, they seem to have created a system where, you know, it's not. You know, you, you know, you're able to have all these people from all over the place who can build a society together with with common goals, even though they're not necessarily culturally from the same place. Um, so, so in that respect, that's a, a meeting of of civilizations. Yeah, I mean, look, the Arab world had that too. Like, you know, you'd um you'd be in some Arab place and, and you're not Muslim or whatever, but you'd um I think pay zakat or something like that, which is basically a you're not Muslim tax, but you're by and large left to your own devices. Um so you know they have the melting pots there, the Turkey obviously um is a you know meeting point between yep. Asia and, and, and Europe. Um yeah I'm I'm guessing under the Khanate of, of you know, the Mongolians, you had all these melting pots too. But, um, yeah, I, I can't remember exactly what Quigley's definition of a civilization is. Anyway, how long have we been doing this for? Uh, we're getting on to two and a half hours there. Sorry, so. Simon. going <laughs> <laughs> to kill us. Uh, Anything else? Oh, man, I, I, I was just going to to to, uh, to finish up asking Parwan in, in terms of, uh, you know, if I am interested in India uh, as, a, as a retail investor in, in, in Australia, uh what do you recommend? I mean, not not to recommend specific things, but like where where's some places I can start looking to do my own research and. Well, I'm not sure actually how to answer that question yeah. because uh, I I've have been, a direct- I've been eyeing off a couple of ETFs on oh, yes, yes. On, uh, on on the ASX, and there's a specifically a Nifty Fifty one uh, from uh, forgot the company, but then then there's I think Beta Shares or uh, or something has like a broad yeah. broad market, so. And, and uh, I guess the question I had for that one, in terms of like Nifty 50 versus broad market, like, you know. I would uh, say any given day Nifty 50. Mm, but what yeah. I was also saying is that uh, because I never had to look into those tools, mm. I still directly invest in Indian equities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I never researched into mm. that, but I yeah. would say yes. How are you finding the Indian equities though? Very good. Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you find them? <laughs> so... So uh, where you find them, I would say, yes, you need to run a forensic analysis of every company. Like I said, that there are only 75 businesses. Right, which so you are start with A and look at the ones that begin with A, then you start with B and, you know. So, I mean, the spread is between large caps, mid caps and uh, small caps. Uh, so, you know, how, how we say it, there's a very famous uh, fund manager in India called Saurabh Mukherjee. And he, he runs a fund where he is... Uh, given a very good analogy 
for all large companies which are consistent compounders he calls them kings of capital uh, so basically that includes some of the very large franchise banks uh, in in uh, retail and corporate segment uh, or there are non banking financial corporations nbfcs which yeah. provide loan to uh, small and medium cap uh, businesses uh, and then uh, there is something uh, which he calls consistent compounders the emerging uh, mid cap segment or mid cap companies and then the last one is the small caps which are which are showing those early signs of uh, uh, you know of, of becoming good companies great corporate governance in terms of running them and he calls them diamonds in the dust and how do you spell so, this dude's name saurabh mukherjee s a u r a b h mukherjee m u k h r e j e a Mukherjee. So he runs a he, he runs a company. That's awesome. Yeah, he runs a fund uh, called Marcellus Investment, uh, and uh, and Marcellus really, Marcellus like so Marcellus that, Wallace from Pulp Fiction. Uh, so Marcellus from uh, Cassius Marshall Marcellus Clay from oh. Muhammad Ali's first oh. uh, initial name actually. Uh-huh. So he took the name and the philosophy of uh, big fan of uh, Muhammad Ali actually. So he took his middle name, which also means uh, a little warrior. Yeah. So so that's that's how the storyline is about that but I really find his narrative very good he's very bullish on India the way the uh, economy is looking as well and uh, and has very good points uh, as well so I would say yes nifty 50 mm-hmm. uh, would be a great way to start because any company which is not performing very well gets dropped out of nifty 50 index yeah. and you just get the top uh, uh, 50 yeah. companies which are which are doing pretty well mm-hmm. yeah and, and the other thing is I think that's because it, it's a very low um india is a, a low proportion of global stock market indices yeah so it's actually giving you diversification as well yeah yeah because you're not going to pick up you know if you've got an international share index or even emerging markets index it's not yeah. going to be in the you know uh the developed market index and and the emerging market index i think it's only like 10% or something like that so it's it's mm. actually um it's going to give you a different exposure to yeah to um other other markets that you invested in. Yeah, yeah. I've I've had an interest um in Singapore as as a market like an index for a while too um with the idea that they're kind of like um developed financially and 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 sophisticated with their financial apparatus, but they're also in Asia, so they they can have access to good investments and and deals and even um prosper themselves from the financing financing side around that for Asia and you know they 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 can benefit from China without being China um they can benefit from all these other asian countries mm. without you know being those asian countries so they're kind of like this um v- v- um well like, you know they, they can spread their tentacles across asia i guess and they they can do that coming from a, a history of um what 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 seems to be financial sophistication mm. so to me singapore has potential to be a, a safe entry to asia too just the singapore index but mm. and, and i guess yeah the the point with asia as well is growth market rather than you know you know europe um probably isn't going to be so growth focused in the going forward and you know you wonder about the united states and whether you know uh that is going to be as growth focused going forward as well 
Mm, cool. All right, I think that's that's a that's a yeah, wrap. Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time, guys. Thanks for joining us, Paul. And hope we can get you on. Yeah, absolutely. If it was you, a pleasure. If Fun you are. talking and uh, picking up James and Addy's brain as well. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, just uh, uh, before you go, Paul, if you had to give a million dollars to me or James to manage, who would it be? <laughs> <laughs> just, just want to see what he says. No comments. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so you're coming back. <laughs> well, maybe yes. Next week, let's see how that goes. Yeah, yeah, dude, yeah. Cool. sounds good. Hamabko pichu dekhegar. What's that? How do you say I'll see you later in Hindi? Hamabko pichu dekhegar. No, don't say that again, please. Is that, is that, is that a rude thing? <laughs> yeah, or just push yes, the language. Yes, yes. What's it mean? Nobody saying uh, that in Hindi the whole time. That would mean yes. That would mean in a very rude sense, Andy. So. Um, फिर मिलेंगे फिर मिलेंगे वुड बी एन अप्रोप्रिएट ट्रांसलेशन ऑफ आई सी यू अगेन वॉट वॉज आई साइंग आई सी यू ऑन योर बैक साइड ना The information discussed on this podcast is for general information only. It should not be taken as constituting professional advice from Andy, James, Andre or any guest they may speak with. We are not your financial advisors. You should consider seeking independent legal, financial, taxation or other advice to check how the information discussed on this podcast relates to your unique circumstances. We are not liable for any loss caused, whether due to negligence or otherwise arising from the use of, or reliance on, the information provided directly or indirectly, by use of this podcast. The music for today's episode is by Alexi Action from Pixabay. Thank you for listening.